my fellow Estorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Episode 16, A Dance with Dragons, is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination also so far of George's style honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also submit questions, comments, concerns, theories, etc. ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Or you can also send us questions to, at westeroshistory at gmail.com or interact with us on Twitter at Westeros History. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. Joe Buckley's doing fantastic work over there uh, with his Scraps and Scrolls edition, which is in tandem with us here at Valar Veritas. And check out Nina Friel on Tumblr, Good Queen Alley with one L. Lots of great takes on subtopics and the main topics that we're dealing with right now, as well as plenty of other things. This week, we've got four more cool chapters. Nice naming theme I was able to pull off this time. Starting off, we have John 12. That's Red Sword, Black Ice, a.k.a. Dark Wings, Dead Things in the Water. The Discarded Knight. Red Beard, Black Male, a.k.a. Hostages and Dragon Slaying. The Spurned Suitor, Red Door, Black Blade, a.k.a. Prisoners and Dragon Taming. The Griffin Reborn, Red Hair, Black Finger, a.k.a. A Stone Griffin Takes Wing, Breathing Shadow Fire. All four of these characters have something in common that they'd rather not. Doom. Doom. Yes, all caps, because Jon Snow gets horrible news from Hardhome and is one chapter away from being stabbed himself, so that's doomy. But we always point out the first sentence in each chapter, but the second one in his chapter today is actually boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. And the boom is lowercase and the doom is all caps. So George is literally starting the chapter off with the word doom in all caps repeatedly. And then it says a thousand hearts with a single beat, which only serves to make it more ominous. George is pretty amazing at being subtle, but doom in all caps, meh, it reminds us that he's also good at being extremely straightforward. He's got a lot of gears and he knows exactly what gear to use at the right time. John Connington joins team Death Creeping Up the Arm. But unlike Jamie and Victorian, he's keeping his infection hidden. And also unlike those two, his is far worse because grayscale is contagious. What Victorian and Jamie had, that's just uh, dangerous to themselves. Not just that, he thinks of Rhaegar singing at Griffin's Roost and, quote, a song of love and doom, John Connington recalled. And every woman in the hall was weeping when he put down the harp. This was perhaps a song about Summerhall, if not Jenny's song itself, by the way. Quentin arranges allies in his plot to steal a dragon, and we know how that one ends. Doom is not an inaccurate word at all for that one. And Barristan, well, last episode we discussed all the different reasons it doesn't look great for him, but if we zoom in on the details, it's fair to say his death is by no means written in stone. Maybe he's not doomed. It's just, eh, it doesn't look great. 
But whether or not the hand of death strikes Barristan the Bold soon or at all, he is certainly surrounded by it, right? The armies of Yung Kai are quite literally surrounding Marine, after all. I think that's enough to qualify for doom or doom, you know, extra O's in there. The more O's, the more powerful the doom is. That's how it works. Along with Doom, we have a theme with a somewhat complementary feel, that of the limited window of time or opportunity. We noted it quite a bit last week, and it remains strong this week. It comes up in a variety of ways in John's chapters on the smaller scale with night falling during their march through the wall, limited opportunity to get their job done during the daylight. Or on a larger scale, like, say, how the letter from Hardhome comes and it describes how everything's falling apart quickly, And in order to do anything about it, they're going to have to act quickly, if anything can be done at all. Barristan sees a shrinking window to preserve the peace and or to act before the arrival of the Volantine fleet. And he perceives that Quentin has a limited time before Hisdar acts against him. Quentin sees a fleeting chance to steal a dragon. The tattered prince sees only a few ways to seize Pentos, and one of them might be here right now. John Connington discusses with the Golden Company what kind of time frame they're facing with regards to their not just being noticed, but identified. Right now, they've got a little incognito going, but that won't last. Not to mention the grayscale creeping up his arm. That's the ultimate ticking clock as these things go. Cell swords are everywhere around these parts with a big role in last week's final chapter as the gang joins the Second Sons. This week, we have Bloodbeard, captain of the Company of the Cat, Toss Grolio's head to stir his Dar's court. Quentin employs the windblown to help him with his dragon theft plan. And the Golden Company takes Griffin's Roost on screen and a few other places off screen. There are no cell swords at the wall, but there is a group of over 3,000 wildlings, a large percentage of whom are warriors. So there's definitely armies about. It's perhaps George's joke on us that Barrison the Bull is the most cautious and calculating of the POVs today. <laughs> John brings free folk through the wall despite many dangers, including the warnings of Melisandre. Other John strikes at the Seven Kingdoms without the dragons backing their invasion, which they had previously decided they needed. They decided Prince Aegon could do without the dragons, at least for now. Meanwhile, despite Barrison the Bold telling him to do as I say, not as I do, meaning don't be bold, he says in effect, but Prince Quentin decides that unlike Aegon, he cannot do without a dragon, and this chapter, of course, finds him soliciting allies for his very bold plan. And how much does blood matter? That, too, is a major theme today. I think Quentin believes his matters, and in many ways he's right enough, but not when it comes to dragons, as Gareth Drinkwater tries to convince him unsuccessfully. His dar makes over much of his blood connection to the harpy. It starts off with his first line of his chapter with his long title, the old empire, uh, harpy, all that stuff, ancestral ties of great worth. But what does it amount to when... He's faced with problems as a ruler. In reverse, it seems the entire Aegon for King plot involves a false blood claim, right? If people are convinced he's the son of Rhaegar, though, does it even matter whether he really is? Well, power is a shadow on the wall, and this is Varus's faction after all, so it looks like so far he's telling it true. The lesson of the free folk is important here. They don't care about blood so much at all, not when it comes to choosing leaders, but it certainly matters when it comes to family. And this first chapter is big on that. Hostages, after all, are often considered a blood price or a blood debt, after all. We've seen that synonym used before. And hostages, as well, remain a major theme. It's a driving factor in the situation with Marine, with the death of poor Grolio and the conspicuous release of three of his Dar's cousins, but none of Danny's men, <laughs> leading them to demand dual dragon deaths. 
John Connington captures his cousin's family and plans to hold them hostage, while other castles taken by the Golden Company nearby do the same with the respective families there. Tormund, too, gives up one of his own children as a hostage to John, along with 99 others as insurance for the other, according to Bowen Marsh, 3,019 free folk. <laughs> Despite all those people, John's chapter starts off with him dreaming that he's entirely alone. John 12, Red Sword, Black Ice, a.k.a. Dark Wings, Dead Things in the Water. An incredibly rich chapter featuring the brutally ominous news from Hardhome, the crossing over of 3,000 free folk, and one of the most intense dreams in John's entire arc, which... That's saying something. John's had a lot of important dreams. I haven't sat down to rank them, but I mean, there's only one other one in this book that's probably as big. It's so packed. Let's just get right to it. That night, he dreamt of wildlings howling from the woods, advancing to the moan of war horns and the roll of drums. So the chapter starts immediately with this dream, almost a bookend to the dream he begins the book with. The one where he's ghost seeing himself as Shaggy Dog fighting a unicorn goat beast thing on Skagos. Let's look at the dream in sections. It's too long to quote all at once. That's a good sign. We like these long dreams. It starts with him leading the defense against the free folk, ordering a volley of fire arrows. But no one's there. He's alone. I hesitate to call this part straightforward, but we've been following the pattern of him sending all his friends away while making enemies among those who remain, thanks to his unpopular orders and such. And here it continues. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a gray beard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man filled with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognized Ygritte. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. Quick note from Joe. Enemies are sending their own burning arrows up at the top of the wall. That's a bit odd. Yeah, I, I got to agree with him. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, for one thing, wildlings or anyone. No one can shoot arrows from the base of the wall up to the top. We've seen that established. Only like one arrow and in like 100 or 200 even only catches the wind. <laughs> yeah, only on TV with those just silly giant arrows. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't have much to say about that other than I wonder, maybe it's like a something to file away and think about, but I don't have an answer for it or a theory. But in, in terms of the characters in this dream, in this first part of it, it's like a mixture of and it continues in the next part of the dream, deaths he feels responsible for and foreshadowing for what the others will send against them. And of course, this curious mention of the burning red sword and black ice armor. Many of you, including Joe and Nina, noted how very strongly the Azora Highness is in this imagery. Flaming red sword is the most telling of these things, but it's not the only thing. Azora High is supposed to stand against the armies of the dark. That's part of the prophecy. And by killing a grit in this moment, Lightbringer gets Nissa Nissa vibes or with Lightbringer. This, this gives us Nissa Nissa vibes, which we've already seen from a grit in a number of places, particularly when John was being healed from the wounds she gave him and crying about it and, and all this other Azora high imagery along with that. So that could be some Daenerys foreshadowing, maybe. 
The black ice armor could be a metaphor for being armored by death, as in like Beric Dondarrion, meaning once you're animated, you're awfully hard to kill because you just keep coming back. But also, a lot of you, and I agree with this, cited the similarity to the armor Euron is seen wearing in the Forsaken chapter. It appears to be Valyrian steel armor, very thin, black, and, and runic, and really cool looking. Yeah, we talked about that a lot in our Forsaken episode because right fresh off of seeing it, we just couldn't help but think of it constantly. Yeah, it's super cool, and I'm really interested in where that goes. And of course, the color is, is unmistakable, red and black. As we've said at the beginning, every chapter has some red and black, but this one probably it's the most important to take note of because it's, it's not only his heritage, but this future prophecy and everything like that. This line, a thousand hearts with a single beat, Joe notes this as maybe these aren't living free folk that he's facing. And I totally agree with this take, this possibility at least, that these bodies are, it's not like a Night King situation where there's one boss but they are maybe of one one united purpose, or maybe they are all controlled by one or just a couple of others, which would give them this single beat feel to their group, like an army led by like a hive mind rather than a bunch of individuals, which is what the Free Folk Army is. It's a big group of individuals. It's a very stark opposite to think of a Free Folk Army, which is this collection of individuals versus uh, the Army of the Dead, which is a single-minded, effectively one-brained object or item or army, whatever you want to call it. I don't even know the right word for it, but I think you get what I'm saying. And after descriptions of giants and others coming for him, that's when John orders them to feed them flame. He gives that order, but there's no one to receive that order. But that's our second clue, that that this is an army of the dead and not living free folk that he's facing because... Fire arrows against the dead, that's usually what you do. Fire arrows against humans is, it's, we see that. But mm, typically that's more of a thing to use against the undead. Here's the next part of the quote. The world dissolved into a red mist. John stabbed and slashed and cut. He hacked down Donald Noy and gutted deaf dick holler. Deaf dick followed. I just wanted to say dick again. <laughs> Multiple times. Yeah, and gutted dead and gutted deaf dick follard. Cor- wait, wait, I didn't get it right. And gutted deaf dick follard. Corn Halfhand stumbled to his knees, trying in vain to staunch the flow of blood from his neck. I am the Lord of Winterfell, John screamed. It was Rob before him now, his hair wet with melting snow. Longclaw took his head off. Then a gnarled hand seized John roughly by the shoulder. He whirled and woke with a raven pecking at his chest. Snow, the bird cried. So the gnarled hand, let's start with that, even though it's the last thing. There's only two guesses that I am strongly aware of and would consider valid at this point, though, of course, there's other possibilities. It seems like it could either be Blood Raven or Bran, and I very much lean towards Blood Raven because the gnarled hand sounds aged, right? It doesn't sound young. On the other hand, Nina points out gnarled is occasionally described, used to describe hands, but it's more often describing trees, which is very fitting. Uh, That leans it more to Blood Raven, but brand tree, that fits too. So, and of course, the two are together, so... Um, unless they're operating separately, it almost maybe doesn't even matter which of them it is if they're working, you know, in concert here. 
still, there. Are, I guess there's other possibilities, but it's kind of hard to imagine anything that really resonates as, as likely as that. Um, but as far as the purpose of that, why? Did, was Blood Raven stopping the dreams? Like, look, man, you're dreaming of killing your friends. This isn't, this isn't what we had in mind. That's one suggestion I saw that I kind of liked, that the dream was going awry, and so they woke him. <laughs> the bird wakes him up, and he's feeling the hand wake him up, but the bird wakes him up, pecking at his chest. But we know the bird has spoken with Blood Raven's voice a bunch of times, so that doesn't exactly take us away from that idea. It's like the bird and the dream hand are one thing, or at least attached to the same being, <laughs> or the same origin. So that's all very supernatural and cool. And I guess that's a big part of it is John's fears. He's got a lot of anxieties, understandably, whereas Bran, maybe because he's a child, because he doesn't per- fully perceive what, it, what all it is, and one of the things John thinks about is, is, I'm the Lord of Winterfell, cutting Rob's head off. We've seen his guilt over Rob before, uh, blaming himself for wanting the seat that belongs to his brother, blaming himself for not being there to help his brother in his war. So there's a variety of types of blame that he puts on his own shoulders, that he, sh- he blames himself for Rob. But there's another option here. Uh, actually, there's several options here, like, replacing John, or rather replacing Rob as king in the north, which might be imminent. And just in general, let's not forget the kill the boy theme. We haven't named it by name in quite a while, but it hasn't, as Joe says, it hasn't gone anywhere. John is a lonely man. Or we can take it as a message. Maybe this is like encouragement. Like, you can do it, John. Only you. You're the only one who can do this. Maybe that's why he's picturing himself alone, because He's so important to this. Well, that's the thing with dreams. We never can fully be sure of it. We always have to leave it with like, well, maybe there's more to it. Maybe we have to be willing to leave it unfinished. It tests our ability to let it rest. (laughs) Moving on, here's a bit of the raven speaking right after the dream. Corn, the burn said, and king and snow. Jon Snow, Jon Snow. That was queer. The bird had never said his full name before, as best Jon could recall. So now think about what we were just saying. Rob being replaced by Jon as king in the north. If it was because of his will or because of other factors or both, there you go. This is a pretty strong idea, I think. And we checked Nina's Raven record. She's got a spreadsheet with every instance of the Raven speaking. There's over 100 notations in this record. And that should be all of them. And there's no other time when the Raven says that. So John is not just casually noting this has never happened. We checked. It has never happened. So that is pretty, pretty special. The Raven says corn and snow more than anything. So those two things aren't surprising. King, eh, not a lot, but definitely said it before. Uh, I think the first time was back in the Clash of Kings. And when it's strutting on Mormon's shoulder saying, King, King. And interestingly, too, if we're thinking about the danger to John, we know from Melisandre's warning that he's going to get stabbed. And when, because we've read this before, <laughs> but, but Bloodraven should be able to see the future, too. He's told Bran he can. He's give there's indications he's done it, but he doesn't seem to warn John about anything. There's no like watch out from him. I don't recognize any of the 
supernatural messaging coming from behind him, from his dreams, from wherever, as that kind of warning. What does that tell us? I mean, Ghost warns him. Ghost is, acts a lot like Grey Wind did before the Red Wedding. But I think it's kind of peculiar. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I'm not interpreting the Raven's messaging. But I wonder if it's part of the plan. Not the plan plan, but part of there's no reason to not let it happen. Because we talked about the semantics around John's oath in the past and how that might be his way out of the Night's Watch to become king and all that by dying. And well, all the elements to that particular subplot are right here in this scene with this dreams and, and what the Raven's saying and thinking about Rob. So maybe Blood Raven has foreseen John's death and he's not warning John about it because he's, he's cool with it because he sees it as part of the necessary path to, uh, to make things happen. Getting out of the Night's Watch is actually something that he might need to do to save the world or to do his part in that. So I, it's really, really interesting. I think that's uh, very worth paying attention to. And arguably that makes this chapter, potentially we may look back on this one as the most important of John's chapters in this book. But such is, a, that's a difficult call to make because most important, what are we going to, how do we quantify that? Still, I would make that argument, possibly. This one has the reverse of the famous Tower of Joy line. I bet this one snuck by a lot of y'all. It certainly snuck by me many of the other times. Uh, the line from the Tower of Joy, of course, now it begins. No, now it ends. But here we have... That's done, then, Rory said when they were gone. No, thought Jon Snow. It has only just begun. And that's, of course, the end of the procession of 3,119 wildlings crossing over. And true enough, John is saying that was the easy part. Just having them walk through the wall, that's the pretty simple, actually. Now they have to live with each other and hold the wall against the others. So that clearly is way harder. And my fellow Westorians, you know what's going to happen next chapter. You know the Night's Watch Officer Corps hasn't really moved an inch in their opinions. They're following John's orders to their credit. A lot of them are not going to be part of the assassination squad, so you can continue to give them their credit, even though they complain. Uh, they still do their jobs. It's yet another reason that makes this also tragic that Bowen Marsh is a real believer in the Night's Watch, yet he still does what he does with tears rolling down his eyes. John's like, I hope this works. And I, I don't feel good about it. It, not just because John gets stabbed, but because what happens after that? If, Bowen, if Bowen's faction comes out ahead at Castle Black, will they not then just seek to violently evict the free folk that the, for the castles John just bestowed on them? They don't like them. They don't want to work with them. They're not going to if John's not there. They're not going to follow his orders after he's dead. It's kind of the point of killing him. And look at the other side of that. What if they don't come out ahead? What if Bowen's faction, after stabbing John, gets wiped out by the free folk that are mad that because they wanted to follow John and they like John? They see him as the person that's going to make this all work. There's pretty much no way more people don't die immediately after John dies. Like, it's really hard to imagine that cooler heads immediately prevail without any other blood being drawn. I mean, it is possible. You never know. But I just don't feel good about that. Meanwhile... The others have probably just massively increased the size of their army based on what we know of Hardhome. If the Free Folk army in John's dream, as we talked about at the beginning of this chapter, was indeed undead or is indeed undead, 
he could be seeing the army from Hardhome. That could be the prophetic element of his dream. Or at least he's, maybe it's not prophetic, it's just he's drawing that conclusion. You know, like, well, if this Hardhome army is slaughtered, they'll turn into whites. And then he's picturing those whites showing up at Castle Black. So that's not prophetic necessarily as like, that's a logical possible outcome mixed with dreamscapes and, and all the stuff that goes with that. And it would make sense, especially given how this chapter ends with the hard home news. So it, the stories are being intertwined. So having all that fit together would, would make a certain sort of sense. Now, John was somewhat concerned with the hostages, that some of them were girls uh, when boys had been agreed on. This isn't because he's worried about the value of girls versus boys, though he is worried about how other people see that. He thinks of Danny Flint because he knows that, yes, to him, maybe daughter and son isn't that different, but to some people it is, and some people would give their daughter up as a hostage because they don't care about their daughter. It's something they can throw away. And he's worried about that. But he's more worried, and this is why he brings up Danny Flint, because Danny Flint is a story of Night's Watch people going bad, not free folk. So that's why you can tell he's more worried about his own people with this uh, mention. Because what happens when there's girls amongst former hardcore criminals that walk the walls amidst the decent men of the Night's Watch? I mean, you've got some of the worst people. So John's worried about what those people will do. And it's just best to not find out. Don't put that to the test. And that's why he says, Tormund, look, yo, don't try to conceal girls. You aren't wrong about Night's Watch crows being nasty birds, at least some of them. And how many of these hostages were children of dead men? I think that's kind of interesting. It's kind of an under-the-radar factor here. It said throughout the procession, for example, three of these are the sons of, of Alfin Crow Killer. Another one is the son of Vermeer Sixkins. Well, who are they hostages for then? Who's gonna, who are they holding back? Who is the dead Alfin Crow Killer going to behave because someone's got his sons on lockdown? I, like, who is he securing? Are their mothers big threats? Then why haven't we heard their names? I, I, it doesn't sound quite right. On the other hand, Tormund gives his own child, and he's obviously living. And there's other living luminaries that gave up children like Soren Shieldbreaker and a few others. Still, I wonder about that. Some of the hostages are not really hostages because they're just kids with, that seem to be orphans. Tormund particularly warns about people from the frozen shore. They fight amongst each other. They're a different culture because they live in such a harsh climate so far away from other civilizations. And he also names his rear guard as men who have all killed at least a ranger apiece. Now, those people probably shouldn't go naming any names. Like, don't say who you kill. Definitely don't go bragging about it. You never know if one of their friends in black is hanging out nearby and that could cause some friction. So watch out for the frozen shore people. Watch out for these possible uh, blood debts, all different things that could add to the general building problems between these two peoples that have so much hostility between them. One of the so-called rangers that's killed a brother in the past is Borak, the skin changer. John recognizes Borak as a skin changer and call, and Borak calls him brother. They just know right away. John's like, I just know he's a skin changer. He doesn't fully process why, because he's one too. Tree girl with a, a good question here. What's going to happen when John and Arya and Bran 
maybe Sansa too, but particularly the three that we can confirm have skin-changing powers. Are they going to just immediately recognize that about each other? Probably. Probably. So that'll be something. They'll be like, whoa, you too, huh? <laughs> like, oh, I see you've been busy as well. And while we've been away from each other, you too can become an animal. Nina notes that political imagery, for once, John is actually showing a little of it. Maybe he's catching on. Maybe Melisandre's words are sinking in. It's it's funny that the person he, he, that he finally does this to is Tormund. Ghost, of course, is perhaps a bigger deal than all that. Ghost running up and saying, look, look who John has. That's, this is a real jewel in John's crown. The thing that really makes him separate and different and, and a little bit more dangerous. Nina also notes the two horn blasts, the one from Castle Black and one from Tormund that starts the process. Of course, the one horn blast is meant to be for rangers returning. This is different, right? It's supposed to be two for wildlings. So it's kind of a merged concept. The horn's only blown once, which is honoring the free folk in a way, saying you're among us. You're, it's one blast for rangers. But it is two blasts, but it's in unison. So it's not two separate blasts. It's the free folk horn merged with the ranger horn, which signifies their unity. Even though we just got through talking about all the problems their unity faces, I'm not sure at the end of everything, at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire, then maybe I have more optimism for peace between the peoples. After they've gone through the long night together, you know, that whole being in the trenches together, struggling together, that's the kind of thing that can make you forget all these old problems, all these old ills, these these blood debts, fighting and dying together on the same side can erase a lot of that or at least put it in perspective. So for now, I'm worried, but I do have optimism for later. And Nina also points out the way they swear. They don't kneel, obviously, right? That's not how they do it. But there's nothing less, they're no less sincere with their declarations, I think. Certainly, they do their own kind of version. They all have their own sort of way to give an oath. They have their individual thing. And in a way, that means more because they came up with it themselves And you know that that means they think it's a good signal. Within their own being, they think, this is how I show honor. This is how I show homage. Not how someone else taught me to do it. Not how someone else told me to do it. Not how someone's forcing me to do it. This is me choosing to show you respect in the way that I choose to show respect. Because they're human like everyone else. And a lot of us can jive with that attitude, right? And another bit about the free folk being human like everyone else comes up here. Here's another good quote. These are winter's people, he reminded himself. Tears freeze upon your cheeks where they come from. Not a single hostage balked or tried to slink away when his turn came to enter that gloomy tunnel. Almost all the boys were thin. Some passed the point of gauntness with spindly shanks and arms like twigs. Yeah, and also the description shows how different they all look. You got every color hair. George is doing sort of the same thing he did when when John saw the army of the Free Folk arrayed before him before the Battle of the Wall, where he just realized a building plot point that was that the Free Folk are people, just like everyone else. They have there's all this variety. They're not a monolith, etc. So John's right too about them being tough, about the tears freezing on their cheeks, and about the life they already lead which breeds that certain bit of toughness. But that last sentence showing how starved they are is part of why none of them slink away. And we discussed, in the recent past, we discussed the different hierarchies of fear, how it's starting to fall apart for Roose Bolton a bit because 
while they were scared of him, it was working pretty well. But as things progressed, other scary things started to rear up. And all of a sudden, Roos is maybe not as scary as some of these other things, or at least equally scary. And then, well, Roos loses control when there's other things his men are afraid of. Similarly, these Night's Watch is pretty scary to these young free folk people because they've been told all their lives that the free folk are bad, etc., or the enemy. And the older ones, too, have the same sort of reasonable prejudice, we can call it, because it's not wrong that the free folk should be wary, if not afraid of the rangers. Compare this to the others, right? Starvation? Cold? I mean, it's not that close when you lay it down like that. Tormund said it right. John's a long-faced lad in a black cloak. John notices they're afraid. They're warriors, spearwives, raiders. They're frightened of these woods of shadows moving through the trees. Yeah, the Night's Watch may scare them a little bit, but cold, starvation, and the others... That's way scarier, especially because it's multiple things, right? All those things are way scarier. Another interesting point here. What is the deal with... What is the deal with the Fist of the First Men? That's still to date the only large-scale attack we've seen by the others. And question comes up because Tormund mentions that they didn't ever come in force against his group, but they did attack stragglers. They did make it really cold. And Tormund is such an interesting character for this. Tormund is so jovial, happy. He seems to be able to make jokes about anything. And that just makes it all the more telling when the subject of the others comes up. Because all of a sudden, the one, this one guy who nothing seems to break his spirit or dampen his mood, here we go. Here's an example. Here's an exception to that. He says things that are very much not funny. He, his, his good humor is gone. The only other similar time is when he talks about his son, and that's a different thing because his son has died and he's, he's sad. This is a whole different sort of torment. Here's a quote. I know, said Jon Snow. Torment turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man, I, I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come... When the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist, Crow? That's an important distinction. The armies of the dead are one thing and probably powerful enough to topple them on their own. They're horrific. They can destroy you, but they are the lesser problem. The masters, the ones who make it all happen. If you kill them, well, you kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. But they're also unknowable, unstoppable. Like, how, how do you even do that? Conceptually, yeah, kill the others and the army of the dead stops. But how? <laughs> how do you do that? John thinks of his sword. He's like, long clomb, Valyrian steel. He thinks about Sam a minute. The answer might be dragons, though. That might be how you beat them. It might be at least how you fight the mist and the cold. It's, it's possibly going to help. Melisandre might have a few answers to that. But surely obsidian and Valyrian steel will be useful, if not a major, major solution. Very few of these things have been put to the test yet. So we're, we're still kind of just, well... We saw Obsidian work, but the other ones, I don't know. Moving on to Hardhome, let's quote the ominous Hardhome letter. At Hardhome, with six ships, wild seas, Blackbird lost with all hands, two Lyseni ships driven aground on Skane, Talon taking water. Very bad here. Wildlings eating their own dead, dead things in the woods. Ravosi captains will only take women, children on their ships. Which women call us slavers? 
attempt to take Stormcrow defeated, six crew dead, many wildlings, eight ravens left, dead things in the water, send help by land, seas racked by storms, from Talon, by hand of Maester Harmoon. John pauses to consider that five ships are lost already. That's almost half. Blackbird is the ship that took Sam Gillian, the gang, to Bravos, and that ship is gone now. We had two of Saldor San's ships wreck on Skagos. Now two more Lysani ships that presumably came with Tycho Nestoris are wrecked on the nearby but empty Skane. So lots of shipwrecks over there these days. Uh, there's some cannibalism, as it says here, wildlings eating their own dead. We had brief respite from that. We hadn't actually talked about too much cannibalism lately as it was like a very constant thing earlier in the book, but it's never far away, apparently. It's tragically ironic. They're being accused of slaving, which is, oh, that's so not true. And it's a Bravosi ship right there. Who's more anti-slavery than Bravosi? So uh, that's really sad that they're lack of trust is a big problem here. Like they're, they could be rescued, but they fear worse things from their rescuers. Even as the undead are so close by, they must really be convinced that the Night's Watch are out to enslave them. If cannibalism and nearby others isn't enough to get them to take their chances. But that's why it says witch women, I think, because it might be related to the mother mole prophecy. They they're basing them their beliefs on what they've seen in visions or prophecies. And well, we did see some, a ship of wildling women and children get taken to as slaves. They escaped because the ship couldn't get to where it was going and ended up in Bravos where they were set free. Whereas their partnership did go apparently to lease and those free folk are well, no longer free. So really that one ship that was supposed to be enslaved but ended up in Bravos instead, that's maybe the only group of refugees that you could call lucky at this point. They're the only ones that are maybe out of danger because they're not even in Westeros. They, are in a, they made it to a city that abhors slavery. It's hard to imagine a better spot for them. It's not like there's good places for them to go, at least not right now. Maybe I'm not thinking of something. So the number who actually escaped from Hardhome given the mission will probably fail. Uh, I don't know if Tormund's even going to go. Now he was planning, he was planning on going. Uh, John was going to lead the mission, and John decides to go to Castle Black or to confront Ramsay Bolton instead. And then Tormund's going to lead the mission himself, but then John is stabbed. Is Tormund still going to go? I don't know. We'll have to see. Worse, in John's final chapter two, Melisandre says, no, it's not just those five ships lost. I've seen in my fires that they're all lost. So anyone who made it aboard those Bravosi ships died anyway. So that's really bad. Uh, all 11 ships. I mean, whoa, maybe some of them got away before sinking, but there's no good things about this at all. What does the dead things in the water even mean? Swimming corpses? Animated sea creatures? I, I can imagine the others could resurrect dead sea creatures, maybe, if their power reaches that far. Is it like a whole brigade of patch faces? Great white sharks? Ah. Tormund mentions that the others made no direct attacks on them, so I'm bringing that point back up again, but I think now, after Hardhome, if there were anyone to make direct attacks on, the others are quite well equipped. I think they maybe just didn't have a big army. The first Fist of the First Men attack, they didn't actually have a huge army. It was big, but maybe it wasn't monstrous. 
now perhaps it is, their first sizable force. Nina summarizes it pretty well. The hard home mission is an unmitigated disaster. Not only is the half or all of the fleet, according to Melisandre, gone, then more Night's Watch brothers have presumably died, done this mission, the ones on ships. Cotter Pike's probably dead. They're not going to welcome back Cotter at Eastwatch. And the mission fails too. Not only all these casualties, but they apparently didn't rescue anyone, nor prevent them from becoming recruits for the Army of the Dead. So really couldn't have gone worse, assuming the reports are accurate. And if Tormund does go to investigate, we might be looking at a sunk cost fallacy to try to figure out what went wrong, and maybe that'll just cause more losses. Maybe Tormund's group also doesn't come back. And, well, that's bad. Iron Emmett sleeping with Black Maris. At least that's heavily implied. Temptation does prove too much for O's for some, I suppose. We could look at that as good or bad. I'm not sure. Some people even aren't convinced that's what it means. That Some people just think it means that Black Maris is like the second in command there. But I do take it as indicating a sexual relationship. But it doesn't necessarily mean bad. Yes, they've broken their O's, but as we've seen, eh, it isn't always a bad thing, especially now when, you know, everyone is potentially just a day or two away from death. You know, live it up while you can. The horn comes up in this one. Had Mance Raider lied to him or was Tormund lying now? Was Mance's horn is just a feint? Where's the true horn? Well, I don't think Tormund's lying now. What's the point of lying about the horn of Jormund now that they're all on one side and on the other side of the wall? There isn't much reason to lie about them having it or anything. The true horn, maybe Sam has. We were, I don't have anything new to add to that. We've said that before. Sam gets brought up in this chapter. Maybe that's meant to make us think of him. But if there is a horn that can take down the wall, well, it hasn't been discovered yet. And of course, horns are coming back up again. We got Victorian's chapter next week, which gets pretty horny, baby. Igrit, by the way, just another note, Igrit backs up what Tormund was saying, that Mance never found it. Uh, So we have multiple mentions of this, which, as we've said in the past, if George mentions something twice, pay attention. So this isn't just mentioning it twice, it's corroborating the story from two different angles, two different people that John trusts, at least can trust given the circumstances. And, well... It remains an interesting mystery on the shelf that's definitely coming at some point. Let's wonder what it's going to be. The last line of the chapter is Jon Snow rolled up the parchment, frowning. Night falls, he thought, and now my war begins. A little bit poetic, but it's also distracting, a little sneaky by George to have the reader focus on that line and think, yep, the others are coming real soon. Army of the Dead's coming real soon. And... Whoops, John gets stabbed next chapter. It's it's kind of sneaky, isn't it? You're all, we're all focused on this, this great supernatural threat, and really it's the threat from within that on reread was quite present, though, wasn't it? We really kept close eye on it, and it's really been there all along. It's not sneaky when you're keyed into it. Dornish Dame says, I've had so many thoughts about Borok recently. He's in the Shield Hall in John's next chapter. And is a skin changer who knows John is one. Will he be able to tell John is in Ghost? Oh, will he be able to identify the second life? That's a great question because Vermeer tells us that Orel is in him. 
And I think if I can remember, John senses it. I'm not sure, but definitely that is a thing where you can sense the presence of the former skin changer in the body. The Blood Raven talks about that too, about how there's children, former singers in every bird. That's a great theory for how some people will be convinced that John is in Ghost, at least because they'll believe Borak. Huh, that's cool. The line that John thinks he remembers dance with me, John Snow, thinking about Alice. And it also makes us think of Waymar Royce. And, well, there's an interesting reason to think of Waymar Royce here, isn't there? Uh, certainly he says dance with me then when he's realized it's going to come down to that fighting the other in the prologue. So let's talk about the loot for a minute and you'll see what I'm talking about. One of the items amidst the free folk loot is a broken sword with three sapphires in the hilt. That could be Waymar Royce's because it was a jeweled hilt. We don't know that it was sapphires. It'd be kind of fitting given sapphires and, and the others, the blue eyes and all that. But uh, yeah, why not? That could be Waymar's. We, we mentioned that when we did the prologue way back when, and here we are connecting that circle again. It, it certainly would. It, there's no guarantee that's the right. It's the same sword, but it's a great fit. A couple other options there. There was a unicorn helm, which is neat. I like seeing a unicorn helm with the big goat horns or whatever it is. There was a silver scaled shirt in the loot as well. There was once a Stark killed by giants beyond the wall, but they tore him to bits and his body was recovered. So I kind of feel like there wouldn't be an intact scaled shirt if he was torn apart like that. Uh, so that's probably not Walton Stark's shirt. It might be Sir Raymond Mallory. He was a Kingsguard knight sent to the wall who went rogue and went beyond the wall and was then killed by free folk and his head was sent to the Shadow Tower. They would have kept his loot if he had any. Another possibility is the sea snake, Corliss Valarian, because he actually went trading at Hardhome. Trade is so important, y'all. It's, in, it's, it's a big deal that Hardhome never developed. We have no idea what the wealth of the free folk is worth. Guinevere Greenstones asks, like, what, kind, what can we expect from that? How much food will they get from that? Well, this is a little micro lesson on why markets are so important because, yeah, there's rich people out in the world in this vast world that have insane wealth that would pay a lot for some of these very rare, odd trinkets beyond the wall. And it would be nice if some of these free folk could make some cash from that or at least get some food out of it. So when Corliss Valarian sailed there, he probably found some very eager traders and, and he probably got some nice deals. Rolling Knight says this might be one of the most important events in the entire history of Westeros. That's a pretty good argument, actually. Free Folk and Night's Watch coming together in accord? That is monumental, right? Uh, I mean, we'll see if it works out. Like I said, I have optimism for the, for the long term. I think the short term could get nasty. But yeah, that's a good point uh, as far as like looking in the current time for things that will stand out historically later. It's sometimes hard to realize you're making history when you're in the middle of it. But as readers, we can sit back and do that. And this is a good example. I think this is a very good uh, catch. We also haven't heard in a while from the other, those three sets of rangers, or two sets of rangers, two sets of three rangers. Sir Alistair, yeah, he's probably dead. And he said he'd come back as a white. And that is looking more and more likely, isn't it? So remember that there was a, a slight argument. Bowen was like, ah, it looks like more like 3,000 to me. But John kept going with the initial estimate of 4,000. Bowen was right. Listen to the number nerd. Guys who are good at numbers... She'd listen to them when it comes to counting. Bowen was very right. It wasn't really that close. 4,000 versus 3,000, it was 3,119. So good job, Bowen. Speaking of counts, 
This one almost got past me, but George dropped another number 63 in this chapter. When John and his escort emerge from the tunnel to meet Tormund, he is with his two sons and three score warriors. So Tormund, two sons, three score warriors, 60 and three. Boom. Ah. As for dead things in the water, hat tip to ravenous reader, Catherine Furseth and Maester Mary of Learned Hands Pod. It's a pretty much a direct quote from The Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. Book four, chapter two, The Passage of the Marshes. The water below him looked like some window gazed with grimy glass. Glazed. Sorry, glazed with grimy glass through which he was peering. There are dead things, dead faces in the water. And last but not least, last week we talked about the cool metal sounding RPG name sounding Ironborn ships. But here we have a different style in play. Howard Wanderer, Brog, Devon Seal Skinner, Kyleg of the Wooden Ear, Morna White Mask, The Great Walrus, Soren Shieldbreaker, Garrick Kingsblood. Pretty cool names. Pretty cool names. Pretty, pretty good. And now the discarded knight. Red beard, black male, aka hostages and dragon slaying. Our title for this one refers to the red beards of, first of all, Bloodbeard, who throws the head of Grolio to provoke his dar in his court. And as it turns out, Grolio's beard is reddened by all the blood, as Barrison takes note of. The black male doesn't refer to armor, but to the act of blackmail. The young guys say, kill the dragons or we kill the hostages. That isn't really blackmail, which is the threat of revealing a secret or else. It's not extortion either, though that's closer. I don't know that there's a proper term for kill, you kill these people or else we kill your friends. I don't know what to call that. So I just, I'm just going to use blackmail anyway because it fits the theme. <laughs> I cheated a little. George's title indicates the firing of Barristan though. Which no, we I saw. think that's just a, a standard threat. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's just a threat. Okay. Yeah. Just, there's no specific term. It's just threat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last time Barristan was fired and, but as he's noticing, he's still sort of Considered a protector, it's just not specified, which is one of the many signs that his dar is not running his court very well. All these loose ends, all these unfinished businesses. To be fair, there's some distractions, but he's not exactly taking care of business very well. And as with his first chapter, Barristan again reflects on his age. This time it's about the tiredness he feels and the difference in his sleep patterns. There's a constant comparison between young and old for Barristan. He's trying to keep up with all these other people. But the paragraph also serves as a bit of a buildup, as we're told. This is a simple man, right? Simple bedroom. He does not have a fancy person. He's been a Kingsguard all his life, and he keeps it simple. We've only got four chapters with Barristan, so there's a need to do a lot of character work to build him up, because although we've seen him a lot, you know, his personality doesn't come out much because of the nature of his job and just the nature of his demeanor as well. But the sleep thing is also related to all his anxiety and having to be a person that he's never been before. He's taking on a role that is unfamiliar to him, and it's a cliche to say he can't teach an old dog new tricks, but that is a thing, sort of. It's harder to learn things that go against things that you've already learned. It's not that new things are difficult for people who, when they get older, it's that sometimes new things conflict with things you've already learned, and you have to reckon with that. Second guessing, poor sleep, all these things add together. We know what poor sleep does to us, it increases our anxieties and stresses. And, and his, he's got a lot to be stressed and anxiety, anxious about. He's trying to know what Danny would do. And he's not Danny. He's not this vibrant, young, progressive queen with new ideas. He's just doing the best he can. 
And all these things are in play right from the start where we begin the chapter in a throne room scene. All kneel for his magnificence, his dar Zolorak, 14th of that noble name, king of marine, scion of geese, octarch of the old empire, master of the Skahazadan, consort to dragons, and blood of the harpy, roared the herald. It's an impressive string of titles and an impressive first line. It's the second longest in the book. It's the longest to this point. But Quentin shall snatch the title a mere one chapter from now, which is somewhat fitting because Barrison is worried about what his dar will do to Quentin for, uh, well, not for stealing the longest first line of the chapter, but that's kind of a nice little fit. Can you just imagine his dar loving these titles being read out? And Joe aptly notes, Daenerys isn't even mentioned. This is her court. It's her kingdom. But they're just talking about his dar and kind of ignoring the fact that He's not the ruling king. He's the king consort. He's sort of de facto king now, but it's everything he ever wanted, basically, to be king by himself. Can't get that sense of it, but it's not working out that way. And I'll come back to that thought in a minute because he's not nearly the first person in this series to find power to not be it's all cracked up to be. Uh, First off, though, look at the contrast to Daenerys. Even as she's not there, we can contrast these things. Her throne is a bench of polished ebony, smooth and simple. His dar sits on an imposing throne of gilded wood with the shape of a dragon. He's got a dragon throne, but she doesn't. She has the dragon crown, but she doesn't even like wearing it because it's too heavy. Meh, he's not down with that. Meanwhile, his dar has a crown and a scepter. Like, we haven't seen anyone wield a scepter. That's an old school, like, real world symbol of power that dates back to, like, super ancient times. But apparently it dates back to super ancient times here too because that's what Hisdar's trying to recall with his imagery is his ties to the really, really old blood. And that's the underlying theme here with his titles. 14th of that noble name, blah, blah, blah. Everything about his list of titles is about his ancestry or about what his ancestry endows him with. Whereas if you look at Danny's titles, it's about stuff she's done. It's accomplishments. It's not who her ancestors are. I mean, that's included. Blood of the Dragon's part of her titles. But it's like Breaker of Chains, Mother of Dragons, Khaleesi of the Great Grassy, which Khaleesi, she didn't earn that by birth, right? Oh, well, in a, she sort of did. But mostly she earned it. And Breaker of Shadow, all these titles, the unburned, these are things she did. These are things she's known for. Her birth assisted her in achieving these things, but for the most part, they are things she did, her own accomplishments. And the difference between those things is respect. Danny was holding all this together, not just because of military power and threat, I mean, like they were worried about what she would do, but because her followers are legitimately following her, not this idea of a new kingdom. They're not following this new Miranese kingdom. They're following Daenerys Targaryen. They almost worship her. Some of them do effectively worship her. She has semi-godlike status amongst some of them. Hisdar can't remotely approach that. He's trying to by making himself seem, oh, oh, all this old blood. Look at all the things coming together in this great being. But it's not working because he doesn't have deeds to back that up. Even people who've been raised to believe that blood matters a lot, your eyes and ears tell you differently, and it's hard to argue with what's so plain. 
His star hasn't done anything. <laughs> Danny has done amazing things. Now, we'll get back to this Danny being seen as godlike and almost an object of worship later, because that's not a good thing in, in, in other ways. But it's definitely a thing to talk about. So it's certainly, whatever his is doing, it's certainly not enough to match Danny, let alone simply just fix these various problems. And there are pretty darn big problems. It's a lot worse than what we would have seen. For example, I mean, even the freedmen are upset. That's something maybe that he didn't see coming. Uh, maybe he should have. After all, he tries to replace the leader of the Unsullied with one of his own people. Is Did he really think that would work? If he thought that would work, then he's a lot more naive than we thought. And some of these other mistakes he makes might be, well, just a product of his mind not being as, uh, <laughs> as quick and uh, up to the task here. So the nobles are at each other's throats a bit. There's, they're not allies. They just, well, they were allies of the moment against Daenerys. So here's what I was talking about with regards to Hisdar following in the footsteps of so many other characters we've seen who want power, but when they get it, they find it to be difficult, let alone dangerous. It's not what they bargained for at all. Power not being what it's all cracked up to be is a central theme to the entirety of A Song of Ice and Fire, or perhaps a variation on the power theme that runs through everything. Danny herself is a great example, though she doesn't shy away from the difficulties of power. She embraces and faces the difficulties of it. It's fair to say she didn't anticipate all these challenges when she took Marine. Perhaps our clearest example of someone who wanted the throne but completely flubbed the ruling of it afterwards is Robert. He definitely shied away from the difficulties of running the state. He's the opposite of Danny. He also probably didn't see it coming. <laughs> Cersei showed a lot of that herself. She wants to be known for the day-to-day -day management, but she finds it very tedious and, and often kind of cuts it short, like is, is brief with it, doesn't give it her full attention. She loves to exercise power, but she doesn't love to use it to manage things. Like, that's not the part of it she likes. It might have applied to characters like Renly or Viserys if they ever got the chance. And it also applies to characters like Jon, who also didn't seek power, but nonetheless finds himself with it and with all the massive responsibilities and difficulties that go with it, like Ned Stark, the man who raised him. Recall, at one point, Ned laments that all this was meant for Brandon. Ruling... Catelyn, the family, you know, he was, you get the sense that Ned was a lot more comfortable with being a second son, being a, being a soldier. And here, after a fashion, it applies to Barristan himself. Many of Barristan's, uh, Danny's responsibilities have fallen to him, even though he certainly didn't ask for it, planning up to be a Kingsguard. Certainly doesn't come from a family that has aspirations like this. They're certainly a noble heritage, the Selmies, but they've never been kings or anywhere near that. This ancient proverb that kind of comes up here, it's an ancient human principle that if I don't do it, who will? And so that's why Barrison's in this role, because, yeah, if he doesn't do it, who will? There isn't. The responsibility of the hostage situation, though, that's maybe Barrison would like to be in charge of that. Maybe he can think of, I would do a better job with this, but his dar is the one tasked with that. It's his job as king, and he starts off by hemming and hawing. He absolutely projects weakness and, well, it's not like we're surprised that he projects weakness. We saw him project weakness well before this. It's notable that in prior sessions, 
at court like this, the other sellsword captains with the Yunkai were present. But this time, when it's this provocative moment when they're trying to get something started, trying to maybe start a fight, they're not there. And, well, we'll see where one of them is in the next chapter when they talk to Quentin. But that is interesting. You don't even, we don't even see the guys who are of the less prominent sellsword companies like the Longlances. So Bloodbeard leads the provocation vanguard and meets basically no resistance, maybe a little, but he, he laughs because they're like shying away from the severed head, which tells them everything they need to know. They're like, ah, a severed head. Like there's a siege going on and a plague ram- ravaging the city. Are you really s- that scared about a little blood? I mean, it's a bad look to be so squeamish when so many awful things are happening. It just that kind of weakness is going to get is going to be noticed and capitalized on. So even as Bloodbeard is trying to provoke a reaction by vividly confirming Danny's death, which of course we know is he can't confirm that. How would he know? We know she is alive. Then they basically bribe his dar into staying weak. He he reacts weakly, and they're like, "Hey, stay weak, his dar. We're returning your three cousin hostages." while keeping the three that are Danny's close companions slash um, commanders. Good cop, bad cop move for sure. Good slaver, bad sellsword. And the Yunkai also reveal a key point, which also shows their disunity. In addition to the lack of sellswords, captains being present, they reveal that well, now we're being ruled by a council of commanders. We take turns. This, on the surface, may not sound like such a bad thing, but it's a real sign of weakness. And it's maybe a sign that the reason they're being so provocative is because they're trying to force an issue because they sense things going in the wrong direction. Without a supreme commander, with, with, without this unity, they maybe see things falling apart and they'd rather settle all this before any more of their weaknesses are exposed. Because then they lose a lot of their negotiating leverage if not worse, which is what ends up happening, the worse, them all getting attacked. And Barristan launches an attack, the Ironborn show up. So it's going to go a lot worse for these young Kai, but we're not there yet. Really neat in this throne room scene how there's like seven, eight different factions doing similar but different things, like uh, all these things that we just went over, for example. But the demand to kill the dragons kind of steals the show a bit, right? That's overwhelming in terms of all these other factors. Nina writes that, ironically, the Yunkai are actually correct on one point, that no true peace is possible while the dragons live. They're right for the wrong reason, though. And it's because, yeah, there's really no peace for slavery, with slavery. There is no halfway point between slavery and no slavery. So you can't really make peace with that. Danny's maybe mistaken in thinking she she can, but as she's also realizing probably going to happen up north amidst all her thoughts on the Dothraki Sea, she may come to realize this is never going to work. She's going to have to destroy these people. So young guy's right. They have figured out maybe sooner than she has that these things cannot coexist. One's going to, something's going to have to give. The young guy is having noticed it first, perhaps is intent on them being the ones to do the wiping out and not the being wiped out. As readers, however, I would not go betting on them and neither do, say, The Windblown <laughs> and some of these other sellsword companies that switch sides. So 
Yeah. Well, I guess it's just them. Well, no, the second son switched back. So those two. We have the pit fighters guarding his dar. That's important because Barrison, of course, is going to weigh in on that himself being a career a bodyguard of, of sorts can, can judge them and think, yeah, they're totally capable fighters. But, you know, in the pit, you have prearranged times to fight. And in between that, you can rest. Barristan is a bodyguard. You pretty much can't ever rest. Your king, your queen, 24-7, they're in danger. There's never a time when they're just not in danger, right? There's always a chance that someone could be working towards their doom at, at any time of the day. Uh, yeah, he's kind of get off my lawnish about these guys. But he's right. He's right. They aren't up to it like he is. And it reminds us of a similar situation with Ario Hota, who is also a man. I, I wish those two could have a chance to talk about being a bodyguard for powerful people. They would have so many stories to tell, right? He sizes up Aries Okar, then he sizes up Balon Swan. He thinks about what would happen. He seems to have a good sense of it. He doesn't insert much ego into it. And likewise here, Barrison ends up fighting one of these four guards of his stars. He ends up fighting Kroz. He also thinks about fighting Bloodbeard. And it's not of a, it's not like Ariel Hota, where Hota thinks, you know, I think I'm going to end up fighting that guy and poor him. Barristan, in a rare change of, of mood or attitude, he's like, give me one reason to fight that dude, Bloodbeard. It's, it's, it's interesting because he's so calm and, but he gets angry. He's like, I really want to kill that guy. <laughs> and why not? Bloodbeard tosses the head of Grolio, who he likes. Grolio, he traveled the world with Grolio. And he recognizes this, this type of man. He knows this type. He knows his ilk. And it's the worst type. He recognizes this, this Melis the monstrous type. This person that really just lives for killing and loot. His life is a series of satisfying his lusts. And Barrison has no respect for that whatsoever. And you can kind of see why. Like, that isn't good, right? <laughs> I'm not much like Barristan, but I agree with him that Bloodbeard's awful. This guy's trying to break the peace, too. And it, just everything about him kind of stinks. So, yeah, I'm with you, Barristan. Barrist, speaking of awful people, though, here's one we're a little more familiar with. Barristan singles out Margaz, the guy who is, replaces Skahaz as head of the Brazen Beasts, but not really, as we know. He thinks of him in terms that are exactly the same as Jano Slint without actually naming Jano Slint. He says, he's fawning to his superiors, but brutal to his inferiors, haughty, arrogant, full of pride, not nearly as capable as he thinks, just all these things that describe Jano Slint to a T. And of course, we know Barrison knows Jano Slint. They were worked together for a long time. Obviously, Jano Slint was commander of the City Watch for a, a good spell, and Barrison's obviously been Kingsguard for a super long time. But there's, there's a little a funny twist here of uh, all these characters and some parallels. Who was in the crowd hiding when Ned was executed and Ned's head was revealed to the crowd, which went nuts? Barristan. Now who's hiding in the crowd in this scene as a head is revealed and the crowd goes nuts? Skahas. Barristan thinks Skahas could be behind one of these masks. We find out in the next chapter he was. And so that's kind of neat. He's like, I would have done the same thing. I would have, I, I would hide amidst the crowd too. That's, that's pretty cool. Cause Barrison's obviously got so many Ned vibes and here's another one, another parallel. And of course, along with the thought about Skahas, he's thinking about how this masks have made Barrison uncomfortable and how it's, it's really bad. So it's a huge security leak that you can just, who anyone could be behind that mask. Barrison ponders how the Dorn situation is going to go in a way that 
kind of reminds us of oddly of Mary Mazdur and Khal Drago. Think of this. Look at this quote. She wants fire and Dorne sent her mud. You could make a poultice out of mud to cool a fever. You could plant seeds in mud and grow a crop to feed your children. Mud would nourish you where fire would only consume you. But fools and children and young girls would choose fire every time. So, By the way, Aziz, yeah. pretty sure most kids would choose mud. They want to play in the mud. Yeah, kids don't like playing with fire. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a couple of criticisms I have of, of, of Barrison's take here. A couple of things he's a little bit right about. Yeah, he's a little, I mean, young girls. Yeah, he's, he's not entirely wrong, but... Not Danny, entirely right there. He's definitely not entirely right either. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, First of all, the connection to Mary Mazdur and Khal Drogo, like that's pretty much what he did. He, she gave him a mud poultice and he, he tore it off and, and wanted the, the other style of healing, which is more about needle and fire, as they say. And yeah, so he chose fire. <laughs> he chose Danny also. I would say this is pretty cynical. He's, of course, he wouldn't say it out loud. And that's one thing we have to keep in mind is that this is POV style writing. We're in people's thoughts. Like, if we're being honest, everyone has thoughts they would never say out loud. Everyone's like, how did that pop in my head? I'm ashamed to have thought that. Or maybe you're not ashamed of it, but you just were like, oh, yeah, I would never say that out loud. You don't even necessarily agree with your thoughts sometimes. But he's very much oversimplifying here, isn't he? Danny is affected by good looks. She might have bad taste in men. We'll see how that proceeds. Daria is certainly a bad choice. But we've paid close attention to this in her POV. And given what we just said about seeing deep into someone's intimate thoughts, we are certain that Danny is not fooled by Dario. Danny chose Dario in this fire every time way, but she set that fire aside when she was done with it, right? She had a fling with Dario. Maybe it'll get going again for all we know, but she ended it on her terms. That's not really the foolish young girl that Barristan's thinking of here. So she's really atypical in that sense. She is a young girl. She's got some aspects of young girl-dom to her. But mostly, she is a woman, a queen, a mother, a conqueror, and just also a young girl. To be fair, also to Barristan, he considers himself a fool at that age. He's like, look what I did. I chose fire in my own way. I put on armor and tried to sneak into a tournament when I was 10. So he's not like putting her down or putting anyone else down. This is just Young people. <laughs> it's a get off my lawn moment again. But he's, but again, there's some truth to what he's thinking here. If we're being kind to Barristan's take, we could say he doesn't mean that Danny would have married Quentin if he was handsome. He's just saying it would have helped. It's somewhat obvious, though, to say that. Like, a hot Prince of Dorne is better than a plain Prince of Dorne? Okay, I guess. <laughs> That's not, a, you're not making, not breaking ground with that take. Again, perhaps we wonder what would have happened if Doran Martell had sent the Red Viper. You know, like, that's maybe more along the lines of what Barrison's thinking of. But still, Danny still would have said no, though. Hot or not, Danny wasn't going to break it off with his dar. She made her mind up based on the politics and saving her people, not based on her own wishes as a husband and wife. So, so Barrison is a little off on that, I think. He's been pining for Danny to leave to go to Westeros. That's what he wants. And we've seen that he's kind of blind to some of the reasons why. And I think that's part of his take here. But if you want to know what it looks like when a dragon queen marries a red viper-ish character, the Dance of the Dragons has you covered. <laughs> and we've got you covered because we and Radio Westeros have done three episodes on the Dance of the Dragons with more to come. 
Barristan also isn't acknowledging that Danny was entirely open to an arrangement with Dorne that didn't include marriage, right? She's like, hey, Quentin, we don't have to get married. We can still have, you know, a political alliance, maybe. Let's, let's talk about that later. But, you know, then other stuff happens and they never get around to it. Quentin actually comes around on understanding that in, in a lot of ways. But somehow his conclusion to that is, I need to steal a dragon, which that's a pretty strange alternate conclusion with obvious disastrous results. But it's set up by the end of this chapter by Barristan and Quentin talking about Barristan's past. He says, you're Barristan the Bold. How are you going to tell me not to be bold? That's why you're famous. One of the main reasons where you're where you are today, why the reason half of Westeros worships you is because you're bold and because you took risks and things like that. He went straight into the dragon's maw too, in a sense, as Quentin's about to do. Melee Samantris was not a real dragon, but he was a black fire and he was surrounded by his best men, presumably, and Barristan just went through them all and, and killed him. So no, it wasn't just about being bold. It was having the, the gosh darn skill to pull that off, which I don't know if Quentin has that. That's kind of what this all has been about. Calling him mud is, is a way to point to his maybe inability to rise to the occasion. So it's hard to hear. Be cautious from a man who inspires boldness in so many people. But on the other hand, Garris Drinkwater, I think, sees it right. He's like, if Barristan the Bold tells you to run, then freaking run, man. If a guy named the Bold is afraid, then you should probably be afraid too. It's a, probably a, a warning rooted in something rational. Why focus on such a thing right now? Because, well, it's Barristan the Bold. He's literally the guy that inspired this sort of behavior in so many of these people. Like He's one of the most famous knights in the whole kingdom. Yeah, so more on that in Quentin's chapter, but it's a really interesting little crossover. I like how the, the chapters really kind of bleed into each other. The so-called Lord in the Breastplate, as Barishan calls him, is probably Pudding Face, by the way, and he's going to be killed by the Windblown uh, when they turn their cloaks and presumably rescue the three remaining hostages. Guinevere Greenstones asks, do we think the hostages will still be alive when that happens? I do think Dario will still be alive. I don't, I don't think that it'll be resolved like that, Dario just dying off page. I think there maybe needs to be a little more conflict with him. As for Hero and Jogo, I'm a little less sure. I think they'll probably all live. Danny's Blood Riders, something I'm very curious about their future. They were left out of the show, of course, and they're pretty important because their oath to their Khaleesi is if who anyone kills her, they have to kill that person. That becomes their life's mission. So if, if any of the Blood Riders are left at the end of the story, then that's got to be like their sworn mission. And that's another wrinkle <laughs> to deal with. So I, I, maybe George will remove that problem by having the Blood Riders all die before that. And this could be a way to have Jogo die. So I, I'm, I'm 50-50 on Jogo. I hope he lives for damn sure. I really like, I, I want the Blood Riders to be around. I want the Dothraki characters to have more screen time. We do have seeming confirmation from the Winds of Winter spoiler chapters that, that Windblown turned and presumably followed through Barristan's plan to rescue them. But for all we know, something went wrong. For all we know that, you know, one of them was killed before that. But there's really not much evidence for us to, to guess with. John Hagee said, uh, George says, Ricaro will have a role in the future. Oh, okay. Well, that maybe isn't so great for Jogo and Ago then. Forget, yeah, I think he probably said that when they died. In the show, he was like, Ricaro will have, oh. I mean, he made a comment, I, I'm guessing. And then Ricaro, because oh, they killed Ricaro because yeah. the actor wanted to leave yeah. the show. 
So they were like, oh, well, we got a no choice. That, so that wasn't actually the showrunner's choice in that case. They may have actually had more plans for him. What's thing that made me laugh so hard is they throw the head, or Bloodbeard throws the head, it bounces around, and they're like, ah. And then Resnack like picks it up by the ear, sets it on a pillow. <laughs> this is because it has to be proper. This is still court. <laughs> it's just like staring at, at his dar, and he's like, was that really necessary? I don't know. <laughs> it's just silly but funny. In order to analyze his Dar's reaction to the head being thrown, he thinks about other kings. And this is exactly what I meant when we introduced Barristan last time about his ability to think back on these characters that we really want to know more about. This is such a tantalizing moment. He's like, Jaharis would have done this. Ares would have done this. Robert would have done this. It's like, what else would they would have done? <laughs> like, please, Barristan, it's time to daydream. Don't worry about what's happening in this court. Tell us what's, tell us more. Uh, good catch by Nina. Gareth Drinkwater says, your father's courts were never half so lively as what they'd just seen in Marine when talking to Quentin, but <laughs> little do they know that back at uh, Sunspear, they had their own party over ahead <laughs> with Gregor Clegane's skull. And it was pretty interesting with people overturning drinks and yelling and things like that. So, hey, they just weren't there. They just missed out on that party. And keep this chapter in mind when we get to John's final chapter. Uh, the demands of the young Kai are a lot like those made in the pink letter. One claims Danny is dead, while the other claims Stannis is dead. There are hostages and executions, but the bottom line is, cooperate, and I'll leave you alone. But a lot of your friends and allies are going to die. Yeah. Archmaester Rennie wrote that Barristan thinks to himself, I have no skill at unraveling such knots, which might be a nod to the Miranese knot, right? George referred to this plot line vaguely, uh, Mirene, in general, adds something that was giving him problems in the writing process. He called it the Mirenese Knot. Shea uses it as a screen name. <laughs> Other, it's also a sex position. That's right. So, according to the TV show, just always sexifies things, as we see. <laughs> and, well, that's a good guess by Archmaester Rennie. George could be, like, self-knotting his own uh, struggles there by unraveling such knots. Stefan B. mentions the prince who came too late as a reference to Quentin Martell. We've had that uh, describing other characters in different contexts before. The late Walder Frey, Torgon the Latecomer. Yep, good, ca good catch there. That's true. Good uh, similar parallel thinking on those characters. And finally, near the end of the chapter, when warning Quentin that he might get scapegoated for the locusts, Barristan says, who better than a suitor, the queen spurned? The spurned suitor. Red Door, Black Blade, a.k.a. Prisoners, and Dragon Taming. The Red Door from Danny's memories is indirectly re referred to here because the marriage pact witnessed by the Sea Lord is an important part of the conversation with the Tattered Prince. It's part of what Quentin refers to as his reason for being there in the first place. The Black Blade is Kago Corpse Killer's near-unique Valyrian steel arak, which hangs nearby over this scene. It's a take-your-pick situation. There's a few other examples of black and red in this one. I, I could have used other ones, but uh, I think these were cool. Well, you'll, we'll see the other examples as we make our way through. But why? Why all this black and red stuff? Eh, perhaps because the topic at hand is stealing a dragon. That's what this is setting up. And or that this is all done under the auspices of Targaryen power. A lot of the discussion in this one is around switching to Danny's side. And as we saw last chapter, the reasons for the wind blown to switch sides are mounting. While the young guy make their move to kill dragons while Danny's gone, Quentin wants to steal one. That part is unforgettable and straightforward. But reread shows this chapter is extremely subtle. A lot of background details. 
everything happening in the background is important in this one, even as the conversations are somewhat straightforward. Yeah, the reading between the lines is important there too. So there's a lot of reading between the lines required in this one. And it's the shortest chapter in the book. So it is interesting in that sense that it's uh, George kind of takes a different look and gives us different looks because this chapter has such a different feel. It's a, a normal look at Marine, meaning through the eyes of people in maybe not a normal situation, but they're not sitting in court on a throne or guarding said person. They're out in the streets seeing what it's like for regular people, sort of. Uh, so that's pretty neat because we don't get a lot of that. This is this a lot of you noted that this chapter has a noir feel to it. It's got like detective underground stuff going on, very different feel. Uh, which really makes it stand out. I think some people look at this chapter as a little forgettable, but I think it's pretty special. Maybe not be super important, but it's different. And that's cool. So again, the longest, second longest first sentence in the book was in the previous chapter. It was Hisdar's long string of titles, but the Prince of Dorne is not to be outdone. Even though this is the shortest chapter in the whole book, it has the longest first sentence. So that's interesting. And here it is. The hour of ghosts was almost upon them when Sir Garrus Drinkwater returned to the pyramid to report that he had found beans, books, and old Bill Bone in one of Marine's less savory cellars, drinking yellow wine and watching naked slaves kill one another with bare hands and filed teeth. Deep breath. It's pretty nerdy to care about these sentence lengths like this, but Quentin also has the shortest first line in the whole book. Remember his first chapter? It's just adventure stank. Indulging in nerdy patterns actually brings us to a good point, though. Reminding ourselves that adventure stank is a really important line because it describes Quentin's entire arc. Adventure does stink. Of course, in that context, it also referred to a ship named Adventure, which literally stank. But more importantly, this adventure Quentin and his gang have been on, it has stunk, literally and figuratively. And that first sentence, good example why. I mean, Naked slaves killing each other with bare hands. This is not the stuff of, of uh, heroic adventures. So the stench, adventure of or otherwise, has continued throughout this arc and really won't let up. He's going to end with as a burned body that kind of stinks. It's not a pleasant aroma, burnt human. And this is basically the chapter where he comes up with the recipe for burnt human, not realizing he will become the main ingredient. And there's a callback to that first chapter here with this quote. A grand adventure, Cletus called it, demon roads and stormy seas, and at the end of it, the most beautiful woman in the world, a tale to tell our grandchildren. That's uh, him remembering uh, his best friend. And that's a really important note here. Um, Nina writes, the chapter opens at the hour of ghosts. Quentin is a ghost to the narrative. His explicit story purpose to come to Marine and marry Daenerys and bring her to Westeros has already died. And he now acts post-death to make good on his commitment to that narrative. That commitment comes from the ghosts that haunt Quentin himself. Cletus, Will, Maester Kedri, they're absolutely with him, uh, driving his actions. Even as maybe we readers say, you can't bring them back. You can't make their lives have meaning. That's not how it works. Arguments get presented to him, but he's heedless. He's going forward and he's in charge and they have to follow him and he'll become a ghost along with them. Classic sunk cost fallacy again, chasing losses. The same concept we explained when Tyrion took Brown Ben Plum for a huge sum playing Sivast. The same concept we just discussed with John and Hardhome. 
Uh, maybe I should have made that one of the themes. But here it is anyway. Regardless of how I present it, it's, it's present. If you read this chapter or this book before the show, you may have been like me when I read it back, uh, you know, I read it before the show, but you may have been like, what is going on with this plot line? I didn't know what to expect. Of course, the show wouldn't have given you a lot of hints because obviously he's not in it. Seeing him die at the end was not the most surprising thing, but I definitely didn't predict it or anything. I wasn't keyed into some of the clues when I read it the first time. I mean, I read like a fan the first time. I'm not super aware of everything. Um, being analyzing the series for a living for so long has made me, has changed the way I read books. But um, when I read this book for the first time, yeah, I was, it was more just trying to soak it all up. I wasn't thinking about it a whole lot until the second time through. So I didn't, uh, I definitely didn't see it coming. Obviously with the show, you couldn't have seen that coming probably. Like what in the show would have indicated Quentin was going to get killed by a dragon? I don't know. Nothing I noticed The fact anyway. that he wasn't in it. I okay. That, yeah, that's something. I, yeah. yeah. You know. But I still don't think you would think right there he's yeah. going to die or buy a drag. You know, that's all still a jump. Maybe you would stretch. have predicted death, not necessarily yeah. that death. Yeah. Okay. And on reread, we've been lo- on the lookout for these things. We're a little, lot more keyed into the foreshadowing. One of the biggest pieces was Danny's chapter when the dragons were not friendly to him the way they had been to non POV having Brown Ben Plum. Quentin, again, following along with his sunk cost fallacy, wants to retroactively give meaning to his friend's deaths. Though Barristan doesn't think much of Garrus Drinkwater, I think I give Garrus more credit than Barristan does. Now, he says, you know, uh, Archibald's the one with the true steel. But to, to this point, Archibald hasn't done anything. Uh, <laughs> I think Barristan is making that classic mistake that a lot of warriors make. They see another warrior, a guy who is brave and would not give up in a fight and is, you know, kind of loyal to the men he fights with, and that's true steel to him. Fair. That's, it's fair. But that doesn't mean he's more loyal to his friends or more capable, which I think is what Garrus is. Garrus, I think, is just as loyal, but a little sneakier, more cunning, and, and maybe not quite as, you know, alpha in a fight, although, you know, not a, certainly no one who's going to shame himself. And I do think he's wise when he says... The dead don't care about that. They can't, they don't care about you giving their lives meaning. This is for you. And he's definitely right when he curses at Quentin saying, man, F your lineage. And then he says, the dragons won't care about your blood, except maybe how it tastes. You cannot tame a dragon with a history lesson. They're monsters, not maesters. Quent, is this truly what you want to do? Garrus is actually right for the wrong reasons, because as we've seen, there are dragons who do care about blood. Quench is not one of them. Garrus still basically correct. Uh, but he thinks he has to do it, because yeah, I didn't come for Danny. I came here to empower Dorne. And while marriage was plan A, plan B can still succeed. Too bad the B in plan B stands for burned, but... Uh, and then there's this rivalry back home. He's worried about his cousins and his sister teasing him and calling him a failure. If only he knew how badly Arianne's plot to crown Marcella went, he might not feel so eager to not look weak because, well, his sister had her own big fail. Can you imagine how Quentin would feel if he discovered how jealous Arianne was of He's him? He's like, really jealous of me? <laughs> He'd be like, why? I know, they're just so... It's This is... It's a real good family drama, honestly. There, it is. It's a, a lot of it is 
you got to put on Doran. Doran like kept them apart and did not. He kind of allowed this maybe to happen. He sort of created a situation where they couldn't become friends, right? Like it, there's no guarantee that they would have, but the way he raised them, the opportunity was never even there. And that's a, a fair criticism among many of how Doran has handled the situation. So he's being romantic, delusional, et cetera, dying for them. It's, it's making the problem worse. Garrus is just unable to get through to him. And it's just too bad. Uh, I think we should very strongly consider that he may be having like real, you know, I'm no psychiatrist, but it feels like it could be trauma. He trauma is supposed to take a little while to set in. And it's been a while. It's been months, I think, since his best friend died. And that it keeps coming to him. He keeps thinking about that. And it feels like it's the one, there's several things motivating him, but I think he, he keeps talking about doing this for Dorn, but I think it's even more for them, uh, making their lives have this meaning. And uh, I don't think that factor can be overrated. But let's pause for a moment, too, to reconsider what Garrus reported about the Purple Lotus. He said, they're slaves fighting each other. Wait, this is Marine. There's not supposed to be slaves in Marine. People still have a desire to watch these so-called death matches like pit fights on a smaller scale. These aren't nobles watching the fights. They're, again, just like it was for most of the people in the crowd, these are everyday folk. They have a taste for this. It's an intentional joke that the password to get in the Purple Lotus is freedom. They're making fun of this. They're laughing at, these, at this new era of, of freedom and, and not having slaves while they still have slaves right under Danny's nose. She suspected this was happening. And she couldn't do anything about it, but she probably didn't realize just how bad it was. And this is Zarina, the woman who was at the slave auction that Tyrion and Penny and Joris sold. She's the one that was like, and one, when someone was like, 2000, 2001, it would be her. This is her. This is the one who, this is the woman who opens the secret door, a door that he had not seen before, Quentin says, which again, this chapter is brilliant with its subtleties. No one mentions the Sons of the Harpy in this scene. Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, Tattered Prince mentions them briefly offhand. But this is exactly the kind of like secret door, secret passage you could imagine the Sons of the Harpy using, the kind of secret basement. Like we're seeing up front, we saw the, the killers doing their thing, and now we see the places that they were hiding out. I wouldn't even be surprised if some of the killings by the Sons of the Harpy were done by sellsword companies uh, rather than locals. They're obviously good at that sort of thing. In fact, maybe the Windblown were hired to be Sons of the Harpy, for all we know. And let me fill out that theory a bit, because, the, again, this woman, Zarina, opens the door. Uh, she's wearing a red, dark red tokar, whereas at the slave auction, it was violet. And, by the way, if she had successfully purchased Tyrion and Penny... Well, she just had naked slaves fighting each other to the death. So I can, you can imagine what she would have had Tyrion and Penny do. But her dark red tokar is also fringed with golden skulls. So dark red with golden skulls, and it's in a room with a red lantern lit by a black candle. It's like, hmm, these colors are very distinct, aren't they? Strong Blackfire vibes with that golden skulls, but I don't know that I actually see a connection here to Blackfire stuff. I mean, the Griffin Reborn is the next chapter, but eh. Is it related to all the times in this chapter Quentin thinks of Targaryen blood, which he doesn't really have, like Aegon, who is a Blackfire? Um, he compares himself to Hargaz the hero, the one who planted a spear in Drogon's back, a black dragon. Um, we already know his connection to that man who's killed by that dragon, and, and Quentin thinks of that guy as brave. 
Arch, meanwhile, thinks of Hark as the hero as someone who died screaming, which another is another terrible piece of foreshadowing. Another awful thing to have in common with Hark as the hero. And note how his hero status is embraced in concert with a desire to have the dragons killed. Like, everyone's like, yeah, that guy's a hero because he tried to kill the dragons. The nobility want to encourage that behavior. Like, they would love for just some random dude to try that again and actually succeed. And they would love it if Quentin took a dragon away from Marine and took it to Westeros. That's not killing it, but it removes it from the picture, which is the next best thing. They'd be happy with that. Of course, this is very ambitious uh, and crazy, (laughs) but the Tattered Prince has huge ambition as well. He has limited means to get Pentos. He knows Quentin, as a Prince of Dorne, is maybe one of those narrow means to get it. And if not to get it, well, there's something else. If the Prince of Dorne recognizes, if Dorne recognizes officially uh, the legitimacy of the Tattered Prince ruling Pentos, it's a big deal, right? If the, if the other nobles accept you, you're good. It's a, that's how it works. You know, it stinks, but that's how it works. So if, if Dorne and other kingdoms recognize the Tattered Prince as the ruler of Pentos, if they negotiate with him as if he really has that authority, that makes it legitimate. He knows he's going to need that legitimacy. He's a sellsword. Yes, he's also a former Prince of Pentos himself, but he knows how things work. He knows how the world works. He knows he's going to have, his power has to be bolstered by legitimacy like that. So I like this conversation a lot. Quentin doesn't exactly embarrass himself, perhaps. He's definitely way overmatched, though. He doesn't make huge mistakes. He's kind of, Uh, a newborn babe in the woods here trying to negotiate with the devil. And, well, he's lucky, though, because his birth and status gives him massive leeway. But really, the bottom line, though, is that Tattered Prince wants something from him. So that saves his life. Actually, it doesn't save his life. It saves his friend's life, since he's doomed either way. He argues, first of all, he's like, there's about to be peace. They agreed to peace. Uh, So what are you going to do now? And either he's exaggerating or misleading or he's trying to or he just badly misread the previous chapter which he was there for the discarded knight as we saw there's lots of people pushing to break the peace and plenty of reasons to think they'll succeed so the idea that the peace is going to be maintained is is definitely a fable so i don't know who he's trying to fool here so my so my thinking is maybe he is actually fooled into thinking that the peace might hold not only that though, the tatter prince is like okay let's say you're right there's always war somewhere though so it's a pretty bad start to come in saying Look, I know I broke my contract to you, but you're about to be out of work. Woe is you. Clearly, they're not going to have trouble finding work. But not actually a huge mistake in, in the bottom line because the thing <laughs> to Tatter Prince wants is Quentin to you know, view him as the proper ruler of Pentos or to help him take it. And that's really all that matters. Quentin could be a complete idiot here. He could say all kinds of stupid things. As long as he doesn't come in like Viserys or something, the bar is low. Nina writes, expands on the idea of this being like hell. We've seen the imagery many times with Slaver's Bay. Astapor, red brick, extreme heat, literally shaping their hair into the horn shapes. I mean, come on, this is super blatant when you catch on to the theme. It's like, it's everywhere. So he's going into this basement, making a deal with a guy who is way smarter than him. A guy that you maybe shouldn't be dealing with because... He's going to want more than you expect. He's, he's going to find a way to tilt the deal in his favor in ways that you can't even perceive. And what's that old cliche? Deal with the devil, end up burned. And well, there you go. Think about it from his perspective. He might realize what a bad idea this is, but he's like, well, what? I don't have much to lose here. Like if Quentin dies, oh well. I mean, maybe he loses a few soldiers. 
if it goes wrong, eh, big deal. But back to Zarina for a minute. He's familiar with this place. She gave him this secret door to have a meeting behind. He's got to be aware of the possibility she's spying on him. And also another subtle note in this chapter, the Tattered Prince talks about the food and how terrible it is. He speaks as if he's a regular, right? It's also an interesting play on the notion of bread and salt and hospitality and gas, right? He do, Quentin doesn't eat. Uh, he said, if the food is so gross that you don't eat it, you're not protected. <laughs> but he doesn't need to be protected because, once again, he, he's a martel. The bread is said to be stale and the stew is mostly just grease and salt. So it is bread and salt, basically. The familiarity is what I want to draw your attention to. This is a guy who knows the food. So it's kind of like he's been here many times. So Zarina's probably spying on this meeting, but probably Tattered Prince is aware of that. And what does that mean, though? If she knows about the plan to steal the dragon, because he's here, I want to steal the dragon, talking about it to his face, so anyone listening is going to know that, too. Is that why something goes wrong? Is that why the password snafu happens? Is that, maybe, is that related somehow? I'm not sure, but it's an interesting side question here. One thing I'm certain of, though, is the Tattered Prince, experienced and wary, there's no way he's being spied on by Zarina without him suspecting it himself. So I suspect they have some kind of arrangement with her, though not necessarily one that's like tight. Like, I don't know that they're like strong allies. But if she's still alive when all the chaos dies down and Danny returns and all that and the Tattered Prince lives and she's still alive, think back to this and we might have a reason why. She's, she's also got a foot in both camps, maybe. From the Windbones' point of view, think about their, their run of luck here. Yurkaz, Zoe Yunzak signed their contract, then he was trampled thanks to Drogon. But now they're hired by Quentin, and he's killed by Rhaegal. So <laughs> for them to complete the trifecta, they're going to have to be hired by someone who was then killed by Viserion. <laughs> so we'll see about that. So last we saw them, they were clearly planning on switching over to Danny anyway, but they were also having second thoughts because, you know, based on what happens at court, and it can clearly see things are falling apart on both sides. It isn't necessarily obvious which side is stronger, but it's pretty clear that uh, the young Kai is fading. And really one of the only big questions is, is whether Danny is still alive. Lack of leadership is something that comes up here as well. We brought that up last chapter and here it matters them too. They're like, who's in command today? Is it the rabbit or wobble cheeks or the drunken conqueror? They aren't speaking with respect of the system. He's like, oh, you know, they gave me a chart to look over, and that's who's in command each day. Like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> they are not down for a rotating command. They, as experienced professionals, are like, only idiots would come up with this plan. This is a terrible idea. And it's, it's a, a sign to switch sides. It's like more terrible ideas are on the way. <laughs> if, this, if this is the way they're going to run their armies, it's only a matter of time before they give other bad orders. And indeed, we do see that. The, cell, the second sons and Tyrion's The Winds of Winter chapter at one point are like, so you're ordering light cavalry to defend a fixed position? Which, if you're not a military person, maybe that doesn't sound so stupid, but it's, it, it, you don't have horses guard a spot. Horses are supposed to be mobile, so that's, it's silly. And horses, especially lightly armed horses, it's the wrong job for the wrong unit. It's like, Choosing a grapefruit spoon to eat spaghetti. It just doesn't make sense. That was a really random example, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. I heard it in my head. And it was pretty good. I was like, yeah, you really wouldn't, no one would do that. <laughs> Especially because I was tuned in to where my next quote was. And so all of, all of a sudden, I just heard you talking about <laughs> grapefruits. <laughs> <laughs> 
But the reason the windblown aren't all like, yeah, the young guy are stupid. They're idiots. We're, 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 because he's, it's a negotiate. Like, that's a bad negotiating tactic. Quentin's trying to buy them away. So they're not like, yeah, our employer sucks. Just make us a, de- make us any decent offer and we'll come over. No, he's trying to drive up the price by not admitting these weaknesses, but he's, he's admitting them if you read between the lines. Quentin's, however, 16 or 17 and, and not picking up what they're putting down. It's for us to pick up <laughs> us readers and to notice that Quentin's not. And of course, there's other things going wrong. Uh, the bloody flux, whatever, pale mare, same thing in addition to that. But again, the one the thing that's keeping them there, though, remember the whole point of sell-sorting is to make money. And that's part of, that's the one thing keeping them with Yunkai is that those Yunkish commanders, as dumb as they are, as incapable as they are, they are really, really rich. <laughs> so there is that thing. And that's part of why money is a big deal here. It's part of why, you know, Chatter Prince is like, this guy, this guy's going to pay. This margin. We're going to make him pay for betraying us. We're going to make him pay for whatever he wants. So they smell the opportunity and they smell low risk too because they're keeping it on the down low. And the price of Pentos as a, as a fee, it may sound pretty big, but if you think about it, maybe it's not that unreasonable considering the prices we've seen bandied about for dragons before, right? Like what did Danny ask, ask the poor for Drogon? The Unsullied, like 8,000 incredible soldiers, right? And, and you know, there was other stuff exchanged, but that was the main thing. And she, when Zara was like, uh, dragon for me, marriage, Danny's like, one third of the ships in the world. That's what it would cost. <laughs> and he's like, what? So that's the, these are, I mean, I'm not saying these are market prices for dragons, but the prices that have been thrown around are pretty substantial. So Asking for a city in exchange to help someone steal a dragon? In light of that, maybe it's kind of reasonable. An odd line, uh, returning to the food for a minute, I think this is a nod to other chapters, related chapters. He says, I've found that it is only when the food is tempting that one must beware. Poisoners invariably choose the choicest dishes. Well, the poison locusts were cited as being choice, but they were, we, but we cited them as not being tempting to Danny, and that being predictable based on her prior eating habits. So we don't need to get back into that, but this line is important. Uh, I think think it's meant to refer to that and not to anything going on in this scene, even though it is kind of written that way as Quentin's being wary of the food. A little double meaning there for George, maybe triple meaning. Here's another important line. What of your marriage pact? She laughed at him, said pretty Maris. Daenerys never laughed. Okay, Quentin. Ooh, maybe this dude's a little farther along than we thought. This is part of the reason I'm floating ideas like legitimate trauma because she did laugh. She didn't, you know, like laugh at him. She laughed at like his nickname, but still she laughed. Both Nina and Joe have a little sad paragraph here about Quentin and like, ooh, this is not a good sign. He did laugh. Is he just so willful that he's refusing to remember it that way? Is this just showing how much of a fairy tale this whole thing is with his name being Frog and just an inverted fairy tale where it turns so dark at the end. Of course, actually, well, that's actually not that abnormal for fairy tales to be really dark at the end. But hey, <laughs> Quentin may not know that. And as we talked about at the beginning, this, is, this chapter gives us a really interesting different look at like Marine and such. And that's important. It's gross. There's dead bodies and the smell of pee and rot everywhere. These are things that are hidden from us being inside the court at all times and and only seeing Marine from the top of the pyramid. It's a different look, and that's important. Danny sees all these things from up high. 
she tries to get involved. Like, she does that. She likes to get down and try to understand what things are like on the ground level. She's not someone who tries to always sit up in the clouds like Cersei. Of course, Cersei's about to very be very rudely placed amongst the common elements, but we'll get to that next week. Um, so it's a really different look, and it just shows the lifestyle, day-to-day lifestyle is so different. We we shouldn't lose sight of that. As Danny's trying to not lose sight of that, it's interesting that we're now getting a look at it so late in the game. But Maureen is a mess. Yeah, it's really, really bad. And we're going to see a little more of that in Barrison's chapters in the next book because he's lining up his men, getting ready to charge out the gates. So we get another look at some of what's going around and it's going to be a little bit worse because more time has progressed. Things won't have improved, you know, by then. Dornish James says, I'm curious to see if Cago or more so that Valyrian Arak of his makes it to Westeros. They need all the Valyrian so they can get. Yeah, that Black Blade, I'm really wondering if it anything becomes of it. I think it's super cool. It's one of my favorite weapons in the whole series. It's so random. It's just... We haven't even seen him use it. We've heard of him using it, but yeah, it, it might be cool if someone else ends up wielding it. Jonathan Hagee says, the windblown are drinking yellow wine. This might be the equivalent thematic meaning to Arbor Gold. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think it's actual Arbor Gold because they talk about the crappy Miranese yellow wine all the time, and it's unlikely they have Arbor Gold uh, available to them, but it might have the th- same. It does fit the scene really well thematically taking the place of Arbor Gold because Arbor Gold is a sign of lies and deceit. And well, we this just went through the whole water. chapter. What's that? And this is this one. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, yeah, and that is what his dark calls it later. He calls it Arbor Gold, if you please, no more of your yellow piss. <laughs> ah, his dark. He doesn't add a rule, but he knows his wines. So ah, that's a good cast. That fits really well. We did not mention this scene in our Lies in Arbor Gold episode with Chloe of Girls Gone Canon, but I nonetheless recommend you check it out if you haven't. It's the only episode we ever made that features the sound of wine being poured. And it's a very refreshing yeah, it sound. It really sounds quite good, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. I really, really like it. I, I've never been into ASMR, but I, I really think that does it for me. So I tried to look it up and just nothing sounded as good as Aziz pouring it. It's amazing because you think back on these all these like years and years of soda commercials and they'd love yeah. to do that. The sound of popping it and pouring it and cracking over the ice. It's like, you know, that is a thing, isn't it? <laughs> Tatter Prince says he can go incognito with just, a, with just a brown traveler's cloak, which is another reminder of Barristan. And I'm so disappointed that the Tattered Prince is like 62 and not 63. <laughs> God, George. Oh, so close. Um, another great under-the-radar line, which just summarizes the type of writing present in this chapter where everything is under the surface. No single line can be taken at face value in this chapter. It's part of the reason it's, it's a shorter chapter is because you just can only, can only pull that off for so long. Great way to finish this chapter. The line is, an old sellsword is a cautious sellsword, which is the opposite of there are no old, bold sellswords, right? That's, this is the extension of that line of thinking. Well, if he's alive, he must not be bold. There you go. Great one. B- Bear, uh, Quentin has no idea that he's kind of repeating the extension of that line, and I didn't notice that, you know, last time I read this book. And I caught it this time, and I'm so happy. That's a really good one. On to the Griffin Reborn. Red hair, black finger, a.k.a. a stone griffin takes wing, breathing shadow fire. Now, I don't know that the line, a stone beast takes wing, breathing shadow fire, refers to this, but we have previously cited it as a good fit for that. And, well, this is kind of when that stone beast sort of 
makes its landing. He's captured his castle back, and he is now a griffin again as lord of Griffin's Roost. So, uh, yeah, and now he has the means to potentially infect a lot more people, being on the mainland, sending out armies in many directions, concealing it. Yeah, so four of the nails on his infected hand are black now, hence the phrase black finger. And as is common with the Coddingtons, as far as we can tell, they're red-haired, so hence the name Red Hair. And he has just washed his blue hair away, letting the red come back in. He's surprised at how red it is, Maybe a little symbolic there, but uh, fittingly, as the red is emerging in his hair again, so is the black on his fingers. That's not good. Good chapter sequencing next to Quentin, as Joe points out, for that's what John Connington was so long ago. A young lad also dreaming of being the hero in the story, of, of slaying the enemy king, of winning glory, of winning Rhaegar, <laughs> earning love, being a... Uh, his silver prince of love and beauty, you could say. He wanted to single-handedly win the war. Just, yeah, he's thinking back on how foolish he was, kind of in the same way Barrison thinks back on how foolish he was as a kid. Of course, they're much different people now, but they have the similar older person's attitude about their younger self. And that's sandwiched in between a young person making these same kind of mistakes that these older dogs would, would uh, know better to, to make. So that's a neat set of chapter placement. You got kind of, Older guy, young guy, older guy. And all they have, it's a really cool kind of balancing act done between them and, and the similarities are pretty rich. And that's also neat because these are, uh, what? Bar that's Barrison's second chapter, Quentin's third chapter, and Connington's second chapter, like ever for all of them. So John, ha John has more chapters already in this book than these three characters have total ever. Yet George still gives them all this wonderful connective tissue treats them like full characters just because they're not John or Danny or Tyrion. They still get thorough characterizations, all the parallels that we see elsewhere. He doesn't skimp on these quote-unquote less important POVs. He just doesn't. And it starts pretty cool. It's his own family castle. It's a perfect place for them to attack. He knows it well, helps them plan their assault. It's strong enough to give them a great base of operations, and it starts in a rush. He sent the archers in first. Straightforward, but it tells you a lot, right? It's like, whoa, we're going right into a battle. That's pretty cool. And it's a pretty useful way to think about the campaign as a whole because the archers, a lot of y'all have cited, the fandom has cited in general that this archery gives them a big edge. Not only that, though. They're professionals. As we've seen, a lot of examples of Westerosi armies, they're disorganized. They're not, they're, a lot of them are just farmhands grabbing a tool. Uh, they, they don't have practice at this. They're not, it's not what they signed up for. These guys signed up for this. This is their job is to fight. Everything they're doing is something they've done before in some form or fashion. They were prepared for the worst, but this was easy. And that's no exaggeration. So even, and it didn't go that well in terms of the, the landing, the taking of the castle did, but the ships were split apart by storms and things like that. So all that really served them well. Because can you imagine uh, that level of disorganization with a typical Westerosi army, how they could have gotten themselves organized quickly and, and still accomplish their goal. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But here we get this line, these were the heirs of bitter steel and discipline was mother, mother's milk to them. And we saw how disciplined they were. Their compact, organized camp that even Arthur Dane would be proud of, things like that. What all this archery business and professionalism and 
well-organized discipline is setting up potentially is George often likes to pattern some of his battles, the big ones, similar to real-world battles. He, he takes his lessons from the real world. The TV show did that a lot, too. And of course, there are, a lot of them are inspired by George, so of course that makes sense. It, it, the TV show expanded on that because they, they had battles that George has not written yet or that they just made up their own battles. And they did borrow from r- the real world on a lot of those cases, which I appreciate because we know so little about how these things work. It's not like we have footage of any old battle from anywhere. The only old things we have are, are from the gunpowder era, obviously. So everything that happens in these battles are, comes with it some level of humanity doesn't know how these things totally work. It's pretty cool that in this case, the example seems to be Agincourt, the famous battle where French knights in full armor, full chivalry, nobles, etc., were defeated by peasantry wielding longbows. Now, that's, that's a simplification. And another important detail is, is mud. Uh, this is the Stormlands, and we've had battles like the last storm where the dragon uh, Meraxes couldn't even fly but was still deadly on the ground with her tail and wings and tooth and claws and all that, fighting the Durandans under Oris Baratheon, or to, who were pre- defending against Oris Baratheon, who was sent by Aegon. And so this is maybe what we're setting up to do. They're going to fight a pitched battle with archers and a severe advantage against maybe mud, and the no- knights of Westeros will become encumbered and slip in the mud and, and get slaughtered. Uh, by this rain of arrows and the terrain going very well against them. So that's, it's a cool prediction that's out there. It's a very popular prediction, so we'll see what happens with that. In many ways, John Conington, or really Tyrion, uh, was correct that the window of opportunity to invade Westeros was wide open. He, Yeah, he was totally right. Uh, and he, Conington was sold on the idea because the reasons were convincing and, and they weren't uh, clearly not exaggerated. They know Tywin's dead when they arrive, and they know that war has severely depleted many of the great houses in manpower and wealth. What they don't know is how precarious the internal situation is in King's Landing, nor the peril facing Old Town from Euron, let alone, of course, the peril of the others. But hey, they're not unique in being ignorant in that department. That they will stay ignorant of for now. But the rest of those things, they're going to learn pretty quickly as Halden gets his hands on all these letters from the maester that he kept at Griffin's Roost up in the Maester's Tower. And Halden echoes the sentiment. He says, we scarcely could have timed our landing better. We have potential friends and allies at every hand. He also believes he has an advantage in terms of recruitment. He knows there's friends in the reach, but the Stormlands is one of the least manpower-taxed regions. And there's a lot of supporters of both Connington remembering his family and the Targaryens. So he, he figures that they can win some new allies because of old loyalties mixed with the current bad leadership. That should give them a couple of reasons to join up with the new king. And so, yeah, so King Aegon, you can really see it. Things are looking up. You can really see that path to victory. Now, who knows about the long term? We've, we've weighed in on guesses elsewhere, and we don't need to talk about that right now. We've got enough else to cover. But that's a pretty big, important thing. And not to mention what we see happen at the end of the book, Varys. That's an underrated factor here. Varys isn't even really mentioned here. He's going to emerge and kill Kevin and Pycelle. And he's one of the most potent and dangerous characters in the entire series, and he's been kind of under wraps for a while. But this is his king that he's been preparing for almost a decade and a half or so. This is his grand plan finally coming to fruition. We haven't seen 
what he's capable of yet. This is an ultra-skilled operator unleashing his skills on the realm. Disinformation, assassinations, deal-making, backdoor arrangements, whatever. Killing Pycelle and Kevin is nothing compared to what I feel like is coming. I think we'd be naive to think that that's just anything other than the beginning. I can't wait to see what Varus does because he's capable of so much and he knows everything's riding on this. But let's not forget, Varus reminds us that Connington himself is not vital to this plan. He's a part of it. He's useful. He's a pawn. Nah, okay, a pawn is too low of a rank to describe him in chess terms. He's definitely a piece, though, not a player. Given that he's slowly turning to stone and just took his castle back, let's go with Rook. He's a Rook. The, and, and it makes sense, too, because he can only move in straight lines. He's not very good at thinking in oblique terms. He's not clever, but he is strong. He's cunning. He's tricky, but he's not uh, intriguey, if that makes sense, considering how easily he's fooled about some things and how poorly he understands how other people will take his attitude and his words. But he also understands military deception quite well. Would you call this the eunuch's gambit? <laughs> It's <laughs> a good name for it. I, we should have called it that. I mean, well, there'll be time for that later. Maybe we'll call Kevin's chapter that. <laughs> so the military efficiency and adaptability is not to be ignored here, but factor in the incredible power this faction has with Varus backing it. Consider the confusing many-headed leadership of the Yunkai, not to mention their bizarre slave soldiers and how awful that leadership is. Look at how Black Balak and his men wield a diverse array of long-distance weaponry. They shot down all the ravens, keeping word of the attack from spreading. This is just the polar opposite. You, yeah, you got, I think, the, the, the herons, the slave soldiers who are on stilts, the slave soldiers who are chained together, they are the, pretty much the opposite end of the spectrum. By the way, you know who would not have had problems with monkeys on their ships? The Golden Company. Victorian could maybe use a couple of their dudes to shoot that down. Of course, they probably wouldn't have cared like Victorian did either. He's probably aren't worried about being laughed at like him, but that's a whole nother line of discussion. In a callback to one of the earliest lines of the entire series, John Connington almost immediately says he wants to go pray for the dead when taking his castle back. It's a lot like Robert Baratheon getting to Winterfell and being like, Crypts, I want to pray for Lyanna. But in John's case, not only does he say it's his father, not some lover, he's lying because it is his lover, or not his lover, the one he wanted to be his lover. He goes off and heads to uh, the walk on the wall, which clearly no one has done for a while because the door was stuck. And he, you know, he thinks about Rhaegar and all that. We'll come back to that for a minute. There's an escape passage from Griffin's Roost that he talks about. Interesting that he just mentions that. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not a secret passage anymore, is it? <laughs> he just tells everyone about it. I wonder about that mention because the Golden Company has in the past been associated with escaping after failing in the Blackfire Rebellion number three and four, and then Melee's the Monstrous' uh, Nine Penny King's War. Those were all cases where the Golden Company advanced and then had to retreat, make a hasty retreat, but or, an orderly successful retreat nonetheless. And he, he calls a war council. Meanwhile, we learn that indeed some of the other ships have turned up on Estremont and Greenstone. That's funny because uh, we, we've already heard about those places from Cersei thinking about that's like one of the places she slept with Jamie. And uh, John Connington says, similar to Victorian, they, they're in a hurry. Uh, we're going to stay for a few days waiting for stragglers, and then it's off. Four days later, uh, we get Prince Aegon showing up with horsemen and Lady Lamore and Raleigh. 
and three elephants. Woohoo! Westeros has elephants. Maybe the first time we have war elephants in Westeros. Sir Harry Strickland again. What is this guy's deal? He's just like, let's just stay here and, and wait. Like, are you kidding me? The opportunity is great. People, you've taken Westeros by surprise. They're not prepared. Definitely push it. I totally agree with John Connington. He's like, let's go get Storm's End because that'll really shake the realm. Storm's End is a big, important castle. He's correct, I believe, in, in assessing how big a deal that's going to be to other people to hear about that. It's pretty smart, I think, as, as much as I'm going to turn around and call John dumb about some other things. This is all very well planned, in my opinion. And he thinks about Tywin, though. This is when it starts to go south. The foreshadowing, we've been over some of this before, but let's add a little more detail to it, which is the, the discussion of Stony Sept to ensure the death of Robert Baratheon, even though that would have been an atrocity. Again, it's interesting that we're thinking about people doing what Tywin would do. <laughs> and now it's not good, but they still think it's good because from their perspective, it worked for him. Even though we're seeing all the problems, we've been very honed in on all the issues of Tywin's legacy and how it isn't so strong after all and how his family is struggling because his unyielding strength is actually causes lots of weaknesses. And this is also something that we talked about last week. Yeah, Tywin would absolutely slaughter the faith rather than allowing Cersei to, to walk. This is the same point. He killed the Reigns, he killed the Tarbacks, he killed huge swaths of the Riverlands. So when Miles Toyn is like, you know, Tywin would have burned Stony Sept, you got to be like, yeah, Miles Toyn's most certainly right. So it's a line most wouldn't cross, but to Tywin, there's just no line there. It's just, well, this is what needs to be done. John Connington didn't cross that line because he did perceive it. But now he thinks, he still sees the line, but he's realizing he should have crossed it. And that's super ominous. He's planning on crossing this line if he encounters it. Last time he was exiled, he lost his lordship. He was, he was handed to the king and he lost his connection to Rhaegar, all that stuff. So he's really, really doesn't want that to happen again. So he thinks of himself, basically, this is the, this is, it's almost this straightforward. He's like, because I didn't want to be thought of as a butcher, Rhaegar died. So he's like, I should have been a butcher to save Rhaegar. Like, would that have even, yeah, hmm. But that's wrong. Not just the morally. I'm not even talking about morally slaughtering all those people just to save your, your friend. It wouldn't have ended the war. Miles said then Tywin would have taken pardon, given pardons to Ned and John Aaron and, you know, let them go home and, and tried to work out a peace. That is wrong. The war started because Ares demanded their heads. Tywin does not have the authority to say, oh, never mind about that. Ares changed his mind. I mean, if Ares did change his mind, then okay. But there's no evidence he would have done that. <laughs> so Tywin literally couldn't have made that deal. He would have had to fight them, I guess. Maybe he would have tried to make a deal and then tried to present it to Ares, and Ares would have been like, no. But Miles should not make this assumption. It definitely might not have gone that way. Ned and John Aaron might have just been more pissed. They might have been like, you burned Stony Sept? You monster. And they might have used that as political leverage. Be like, look at this guy. They killed the hero Robert Baratheon and slaughtered all these innocent people. That's how afraid of him they were. They wouldn't face him head to head. They had to burn him to death because they were afraid to face him like a man. The propaganda writes itself. And it's, it's only partly propaganda because you don't have to lie to call this an atrocity. 
the Robert part, you know, that's just one person. But burning the city, that's really an atrocity. So, yeah, what's John Connington going to do? Burn King's Landing. The bell's going to set him off. Season eight reminders come up here. John constantly thinking about the bell. John constantly thinking about the bell. So we've been over a lot of this before, so we don't need to rehash all of it. But the bottom line, doesn't look good for King's Landing, doesn't it? And Tyrion is just now getting back into being himself. And as we saw, there's some downside to that. He's immediately drinking again. He's like, give me some wine. I feel like myself. And he's thinking about what his father would do. These are not the, the parts of his personality he should be going back to. John Connington kind of doing it the same. Trying to pr- conduct a war with the attitude of Tywin. And well, his relationship with wine is a little different here. <laughs> it's almost funny, but we'll get back to it in just a second. First off, though, real quick, Nina has no confidence in John Connington vis-a-vis his family's hostages. I hadn't thought about this that much, but yeah, if he's going to be committing atrocities and he, he says, look, none of you have anything to worry about unless Red Ron at Connington proves an utter fool. As we see in Kevin's chapter, it sounds like Red Ron at Connington is eager to be an utter fool. He's like, let me go take my castle back. Just give me some men. I'll do it. Let me prove that I'm loyal. I'm, I'll prove my cousin's got nothing to do with me you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be bad. So maybe Connington might, uh, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would, especially given all these things we just said, that would skimp, go that far. He would uh, hesitate to kill, kill children. So bad, bad, bad. Um, and I want you wonder what the rest of his faction will think of that. Is that going to be a turnoff to young Aegon? To Lamore, I would think yes. But I don't know about the rest of them. Like Halden, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't think Halden would care that much. I Duck, mean, I don't know. I feel like, you know, young Griff, like, didn't he think about how his sister, in quotes, like, was killed as a child? Yeah. I mean, pro- I mean, it probably isn't that much on his mind, but how can he not think about it sometimes? Yeah, you're right. He may just think a lot. He may, he may be somewhat focused on that as part of his justification. I mean, it's definitely like Danny is on this quest to win the throne because her brother told her. And, like, it's the same thing. Like, you were brought up to believe this was yours. Another thing that is very ominous about John Connington and his outlook is, is the ticking clock on his grayscale, meaning not just that he's an infectious, uh, uh, an infection risk to other people, that he could get in his head. Like, when the grayscale starts infecting his brain. We saw what the stone men do. They're, you know, they become violent and uh, unhinged and it's not good for you. Uh, so if John Connington is somehow able to conceal it that long, which maybe he won't, maybe it'll, word will spread somehow that'll affect his decision-making. And I don't think it'll be a good thing, right? But the guy has skills, right? We, we talked about that. Like, he was made hand for a reason in the first place. It wasn't just nepotism or favoritism. Uh, and again, it looks like he's going to succeed in taking Storm's End, which implies some cleverness, some capability, certainly. But this thing with Grayscale is not clever. And this is what I mean with Tyrion getting back to wine. This is kind of a funny parallel. So, John Connaughton thinks how asking for vinegar every morning would make people suspicious. So instead, he asked for the cheapest wine in the castle. The servant thinks this is weird enough to say something, which is the exact thing John is allegedly supposed to be avoiding. He's supposed to not draw attention, yet he's like, give me the cheapest wine. And the guy's like, the cheapest wine? He's like, yeah. And then he's like, mission accomplished. No one noticed. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Worse, you are a rich lord who is in a take the throne or die situation. What the hell do you care about conserving one cup of wine per day to maintain this very important secret? Literally, 
we went over risk reward before, and this is one of the worst things I've ever seen in terms of risk reward. He's risking his secret getting out, a huge secret that he thinks is massively important to keep on, under wraps, yet he's only going to, he, he won't use decent wine to help keep it concealed. He's like, nah, I own a castle with a giant wine cellar, but pff, I'm not going to waste the good stuff. The me- he won't even waste the medium stuff. What does he say about that? I don't know much about wine creation. Is there any chance that like a cheap wine is actually, you know... Has more like alcohol content? Yeah, that is better. Not really. I mean... Yeah, it, I, not alcohol content. I'm just comparing it to like the vinegar that he wants. Like if he prefers vinegar. I don't think so. Uh, it's funny because Nina made a similar point when we were discussing this offline. She thought... She told me, she's like, I think Aziz maybe remembered this wrong. Surely he was asking for the cheaper wine because it's got a higher content of something like the vinegar. But no... That's uh, not his thinking at all. So he, yeah, Nina, he doesn't I, even think that. He just doesn't want to waste good wine. It's okay. that simple. It's, it's, it's phrased that way, which it's like, really? Yeah, <laughs> he's just being dumb. So, he's wow. Frugal. He's, yeah, this is the wrong kind of frugal, my man. Yet he criticizes Aegon for naming Duck to his Kingsguard because it's, you know, uncautious and sloppy or whatever. The conversation that ensues from that is similar to uh, what Visenya and Aegon the Conqueror, her brother, had about forming the King's Guard in the first place, which was her, uh, her thing. She arranged it. Aegon was like, let's have a tournament. All the greatest warriors will win and they'll be the King's Guard. She's like, nah. Prowess is important. Loyalty is more important. A willingness to die for the king is the most important of all. I see her point. And Aegon maybe doesn't, he, he seems to have figured this out on his own. It's a pretty good quote here. He says, Duck will die for me if need be, he had said. And that's all I require in my Kingsguard. The Kingslayer was a warrior of great renown and the son of a great lord as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Duck would indeed probably die for Aegon, and who else would? Well, John Connington himself, maybe. But he's not a Kingsguard, not going to join the Kingsguard. So really, it seems like Duck is maybe the only one for now that would die for Aegon. And maybe someone else will emerge, but there's no one else could ever really have that connection of being the one that's been there since the early days, being the one to train him day to day. They have like a, they're, they're pretty tight. No one can replace that. On the other hand, though, John Cunnings is like, yeah, he'll die for you and it'll be too easy. They'll kill him easily. That's the point. That's the problem is, yes, I appreciate his loyalty, but he's just not skilled enough. So mm. I think part of it is you should have a nice mix. Yeah, maybe. All of them should be like, obviously loyal to you, obviously, yeah. but. Some should be extra loyal to you and some should be extra talented. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's probably, that might be the, the way, right way to do it. Let's talk more about John's like, inner thoughts and his feelings about Rhaegar and all that. He gives himself this poetic line. It reminds me of Victorian's attempts to be poetic. I rose too high, loved too hard, dared too much. I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. Like, eh, making a bit too much out of just youthful pride there, John. Still, I don't, I don't begrudge him that, you know. So he's focused on doing everything for one person rather than his personal ambition, which he sees as a big sign of maturity. I don't know that I fully agree with that, but it is better than just, you know, trying to fulfill your pride. I don't even think he's, like, I mean, he's being poetic, but I don't even think he's that exaggerative there, just in that he did lose everything. Oh, yeah, Every but loved, loved too hard. <laughs> You know, like. I mean, to be fair, love too hard. I mean, I don't love whatever. I don't want to get into that. But it, it, he wouldn't have done all of that. He wouldn't have lost everything if he hadn't loved him so much. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. I mean, maybe not because he still wanted, like, he was after that glory. That didn't have anything to do with Rhaegar directly. Yeah. 
But it, it, the two things are intertwined. It's hard to separate them. So you, that's a good point. Anyway, but he thinks about other, other examples of lines of thinking that show us his state of mind and how he feels about Rhaegar and all that is, for example, that he didn't like Elia, didn't think she was worthy <laughs> of Rhaegar. And it's like, hmm, interesting line of thinking. But this comes up in part because of new marriage options. Connington is adamant that Aegon should remain unmarried in case Daenerys comes back into the picture. And you can see his point there. I think that's probably wise, even though it probably won't work out. Strategically speaking, I think it's a sound call. However, I'm with a lot of you that predict that he's going to fall for Arianne and John Connington won't be able to stop it because Aegon is willful and he is technically in charge. And if he wants it, that's what's going to happen. And if Arianne wants it, well, she's rather convincing. And it's funny because this is who's brought up in both cases. They're like, well, Arianne, you know, House Martell, should we do a marriage there? And he's like, oh, not you? Well, what about, or not him? Well, what about you, John Connington? Will you marry Arianne? He's like, I don't think so. So he just kind of shuts that down and we know why because of the grayscale and, and his orientation. But still, it says a lot about this lack of their ability to use this, uh, this weapon they have. It's in their arsenal, these marriages. Marriage alliances are really important. So yeah, that's kind of a big deal. So here's a, an important moment. When he's up on the wall walk and he's, it's one of the saddest lines from John Connington is him remembering this line, your father's lands are beautiful. It really summarizes the whole situation with Rhaegar and John and, and Re- John's perhaps unrealistic expectations, his, his love for Rhaegar that may, Rhaegar may not have even been aware of. And this is a treasured moment. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not much happens though, right? That's just, it's just, it goes to show how little progression this relationship ever had, most certainly because it couldn't have progressed. Rhaegar probably wasn't interested in John that way. He has very little to cling to. This is the one line. He, can, he thinks of Rhaegar saying things, isn't it? But, but as far as direct quotes, this is, this is it. This is the only direct quote we have uh, from Rhaegar and John's memories. And it's the, of all the lines, it's the one that he remembers. And it's, your father's lands are beautiful? Like, this is his... I'm not making fun of him. I'm just saying <laughs> it's sad. Like, this is the line. That's as close as they got. This is the man he was in love with. And it's just like, this is... This is the the closest they got to some sort of positive sentiment returned to him. You know, he was so starved for so so badly wanting more. This is the all you know he what he clings to. I guess it was also a good memory when he saw yeah, him, he was he, there at his homestead, so to speak. He was very proud of it. Yeah, and he was he like, having was Rhaegar at his more, house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably a lot of one on one time. Yeah, and it's it is a really beautiful spot. Like. That is the like the the view is incredible, and so that like that adds to the moment. That's something we can't feel, <laughs> and it's very unique too, in that sense that his silver prince. It's this private moment they have, but it's not really that intimate. Um, I guess that's a, a better way to summarize it, perhaps. I uh, would note when Aegon finally comes to John Connington as well, uh, coming back to Rhaegar's alleged son, who probably isn't. John thinks Rhaegar's eyes were a deep purple, darker than this boy's, which is. Maybe, uh, yeah, he thinks of him not as his son. He doesn't think of him as Rhaegar's son, which might be a clue that deep down Connington knows. He's in denial that this isn't really Rhaegar's son. But if he pretends hard enough, <laughs> it, it, it makes him feel good. Deep subconscious denial, perhaps. Well, let's close out with uh, a couple of random thoughts. A couple of you guys, Nina and Tree Girl in particular, wrote some good takes on how similar this is to Theon. 
There's some very similar vibes to Theon here, capturing a castle that's lightly held, not expecting an attack. In part, your success is based on your familiarity with the place and the way he treats the people inside. There's the same disconnect. Theon's like, look, be a decent lord to me and you know you don't have to worry about anything. John's like, do well and there's no reason why any harm should come to you. It's, he's not winning them over. He's like, I won't hurt you. I'm your rightful lord. He's not like, I'll be a good lord. He doesn't give them any words of encouragement, no words of, it's going to be okay now. I'm going to be a good lord. He doesn't leave them feeling well. He leaves them probably feeling quite anxious. Heck, they just saw their own maester thrown out the window. And you know, maesters have a, tend to have personal relationships with people because they're doctors. So they, a lot of times there's like a, a closeness to the maester that a lot of people form by living with them so long and having, you know, not like intimate moments, but professionally intimate moments, maybe. So they're not, they're like, who is this guy? But John thinks, ah, don't, no problem. You know, I'm their rightful Lord. They'll fall in line. That's not a really a good way to view it. And it's similar to Theon kind of being in denial about, they all looked at him like a stranger. You know, they were looking at him with strangers eyes, even though they had known him all his life. And it's similar here. The, the people at Griffin's Roost look at John like a stranger. Good parallel there. So again, that's a good example of what I was saying at the beginning about how even these minor characters get tied into these big thematic parallels. We get connections here and there. It's, it's quite cool. I had a question. So if John Connington lives long enough to find out that Jon Snow is Rhaegar's son, do you think there's any chance that he would think that he was named after him? <laughs> Instead of John Aaron? Yeah. yeah, he might. That's hilarious. I definitely didn't think of that. Yeah. I kind of don't, I never imagined John Connington living long enough to find out about Jon Snow, but that is a whole rabbit hole. We'll have to consider it yeah. some other time. One last point. Remember what Euron said to Victorian. The maester said we couldn't fly, but what if he lied? Well, in this chapter, we see a maester trying to fly. He's thrown out the window by the Golden Company. He tries to flap. And as he even said, it's like he was trying to fly. He was like, is that a Euron joke? George, you and your dark sense of humor. But I'm not sure that's actually what he was doing, but I suspect it was. <laughs> it's pretty good. Pretty good. Got a little, little friendly Casanova coming over here as we wrap up. Last week, we covered 161 minutes, 47 seconds. This week, 135 minutes, one second. So far, 2,611 minutes of 29, 22, three, 311 minutes left. 311. Huh, how about that? <laughs> Um, but the last chapters are um, Amber and their energy. Yeah, that's it. Uh, 89.4% of the way through. So we got 10% left. That's still a lot of chapters. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's still quite a bit. Check out the video version if you listen to the podcast version to see the difference and vice versa. The podcast version edits out a lot of the spaces, me coughing or me stumbling over my words. Me occasionally, I delete a take that didn't come out very well, or if I'm repetitive, a little bit more efficient. Yeah, yeah, you delete it if you're repetitive. I delete it if I'm repetitive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and as well, check out our website. Ashea has got a beautiful setup there where you can go to any chapter in any book with just a couple of clicks. No need to search around or scroll through. And if you like what you see, like the video, give us a review on your favorite podcast uh, platform that you use. And if you are feeling generous or that you listen often enough to justify it, head over to patreon.com and sign up there. Pledge the amount that you think is appropriate. 
You choose the amount per month you give. It doesn't have to correspond to the levels listed there. It's take your pick, pay your own way. But we do have benefits and bonus episodes and things like that at certain levels. We mentioned a few of our other episodes, our scripted content. We mentioned the Dance of the Dragons. We mentioned Bitter Steel. We mentioned the Golden Company. Uh, we probably mentioned some other ones. I don't remember. The Horn. You know, yeah, well, there's a couple of them, but it doesn't matter. You guys know our catalog is there to did be you say viewed. The Forsaken? I don't think I did, yeah, but the Forsaken definitely got mentioned, yeah. didn't it? That's a good one for sure. Next week, I was able to manage another well-themed set of names, but hey, that's George's work. Me just picking up the pieces, picking up what he's throwing down. George is so good at this. Makes it easy. Uh, four chapters begin with The Sacrifice, A Ritual in the Snow, a.k.a. The Trials and Travails of Theon, Tycho, and Christopher. Victorian, A Ritual in the Sea, a.k.a. The Gang Examines a Dragon Horn. The Ugly Little Girl, A Ritual in the Shadow, a.k.a. A Face-Off of Ice and Fire. And Cersei II, A Ritual in the Street, a.k.a. the one with the walk of shame. Yep, yep, that's what it is. Thanks to Joe and Nina for their invaluable contributions. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for posting the chapters in our Facebook group and leading the discussions there and posting great artwork to accompany it. Thanks to our mods on uh, Discord as well. That's Sir Slorp. And thanks to you all who contribute over on Flick. Great discussions chapter by chapter over there. Uh, ditto goes for all of our other spots. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for his excellent map work. He's got a new map out, Targaryen map, which posted in the Facebook group. It kind of, it's not complete yet, but it's getting close. It's draft form. It looks awesome. He'd love your feedback on that. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for our intro music for Valerie Reedus. Thanks to Joey Townsend, Jesse Kowal for our regular intro outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for improving our sound quality each week. Thanks to our patrons who make all this possible. And our good friend, Yoke Boy, is a guest on Here Be Dragons. They return to their uh, I Know That Nerd format, kind of a get-to-know-you interview style, laid-back uh, thing. And Yoke Boy is a great dude, friend of ours, and I bet you'll learn some cool things about him if you head over there. Ask him about his love of Slim Jims. <laughs> so until next week, y'all, for more Valor Aritas, on behalf of Ashea and everyone else, we'll see you then. Thanks, y'all, and bye. <laughs>